What's up, guys? If you're on Spotify right now, please follow the show so that you don't miss any future episodes and leave a five-star review. Thank you. In the 1500s, the fourth largest manufacturing power was India. Mm. India was producing amazing stuff. They were in a great position because they were there, you know, between China, Iraq, Iran, all that. Then the British come in. And the thing that the British destroyed was all manufacturing in India. Because once the British sucked everything out of India, then they wanted to turn Indians into consumers of British and imported goods. So they destroyed India's ability to manufacture and flooded India with cheap All right, Rachel, thank you so much for coming here. And congratulations on the new book coming out, Making It in America by Rachel Slay. We're going to talk all about it today. So the link will be in the description for everyone to check it out. But we were just talking a little bit before the podcast. I love talking with people like you who have a whole bunch of scope of history beyond just the topic they're covering like right now. We're going to talk about the fact that you're really covering where manufacturing in America is at the moment, but you've gone through all the way back to basically like almost the 1600s with the history of how we got here and what went on. So what what got you into this story in the first place, though? What what made you interested in, in covering, I guess, the fall of U.S. manufacturing? Yeah, well, the fall and revival, because this is an upbeat story. I mean, I want people to understand, like, we're going to do this. We're, it's going to happen with or without you. You might as well get on board. But um, great question. The answer is... I was the biggest nerd when I was a kid. That's probably not surprising. I write books. so um, (laughs) And I was obsessed with labels. I really Mm. was. I read everything. I mean, when you're a reader, like, there's nothing you won't read. You know, I was reading the back of my Barbies, and it would say, like, patent pending. I'm looking Mm. at this thing when I'm, I don't know, what, six years old, and I'm like, what's patent pending? Are you OCD? Because I'm OCD, that's oh. something I would do. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't. I wouldn't say it's. I wouldn't say it's OCD. Okay. I'm a compulsive reader. Yes, <laughs> I am. I love ad copy. I love cereal boxes. Anyways, the point is, like, I was always reading labels, and when I was a kid, which was a hundred million years ago, but we'll just say seventies <laughs> in the seventies, almost everything was made in the U.S. Mm. And I know that because I was reading these labels, right? And so the one thing that you were supposed to look for wasn't just made in U.S., because, of course, everything was made in the U.S., but also you're supposed to look for the union label. There was even a song, look for the union label. It was that actually was a quite, thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. It was. You guys need to find this clip. All right. Look it up. It was, a, it was like a jingle? It was a total jingle. It was sung by like, the— Like, look at the Teamsters. Inter- like, yeah. It was like sung that? by the ILGW, the International Lady Garment Workers Union— people um in the 70s you can find a clip of it please do because it's worth it and was that like a banana clip or something what (laughs) (laughs) oh my god you found it it? look for the union label son of a bitch this is amazing we belong to the international ladies garment workers union and we have sewn our union label right in here it tells you we're able to do what every american wants to do have a job doing honest work at decent wages when you see the union, what the fuck is this? Us, making a living, making your clothes right here in America. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Oh, this is like no joke. This is like a Broadway production. Oh, yeah. Wow. So this is actually part of a long tradition. Okay. All right, we got it, Alessi. That's perfect. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Um, this is a long tradition of, of unions um, putting together shows, actually. Yeah. And a lot of that started in New York City right here in the Garment District and all over New York City, you know, starting from, you know, the 1900s, the mm-hmm. early 1900s when you had a lot of immigrants. And the idea was, like, we, we need the union to do a lot more than just negotiate wages. We need the union to build community, help people adjust to coming to America, teach them the English language, teach them mm-hmm. how to bank. And if they couldn't bank, give them a bank, create a bank that was like union friendly um, and understand uh, the needs of the piece worker, or the, the textile worker, whatever it was. And so they actually did put on shows like from the very start because it was part of building community. You know, when you're in a show with somebody mm. and you're you're singing along next to them. You know, you're not just now making clothes and showing up nine to five or in those case in those days, probably like nine to, oh, my God, midnight. But <laughs> um, but, you know, you you were part of a group that yeah. was working toward something, yeah. something better than just producing. And what happened? What happened? Well, it's a really interesting story, actually. And um, it actually my argument that is that it comes from the top down. There's this whole segment of the population that is absolutely convinced that unions destroyed American manufacturing. I'm going to take them on. I'm happy to argue with them. Let's do it. All right. Okay. So what happened was you have companies that want to make more money, and you can't begrudge them that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have executives who start to see an opening, a changing in – Let's just say a change in values, political values at the top, which is the politicians at the top, presidents, senators, U.S. representatives understood that money won seats, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, popular vote. It's like the guy with the most money wins. And so they started started courting and really working very closely with, like, corporate executives. And at the same time, you have this new – we're going to call it neoliberal. That's the name for it now. But this new thinking coming out of the Chicago School, the University of Chicago. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Milton Friedman, I know there's a new yep. biography about him. And he's saying basically that corporations don't owe anything to the people. Corporations are beholden to shareholders, shareholders. Yeah. right? Learned all about that in business school. Okay, yeah, yep. you went to business school, right? So you mm-hmm. remember this. And so if a corporation has no responsibility to the people, why do we have pensions? A pension is an expensive thing for a corporation, yes. right? A pension ties the worker to the corporation as much as the worker as, as you know, it, it's it's a benefit, um, and then there were all these other things that that were kind of a given in the 1940s, 50s, 60s that corporations took care of people. And Milton Friedman said, no, actually, that's actually not part of a true business. A true business is only beholden to the shareholders. And um, that kind of thinking allowed people to start imagining a future where – executives were highly compensated for the decisions that they were making and workers could be free roaming 
Mm. They were like all free agents. And P.S., that was a benefit, too, to the corporation in that then you didn't have to worry about unions. You could easily get around unions now because telling unions to fuck off basically was no longer um, seen as a a bad populist decision. So you probably remember, and I I, I hope I'm not repeating too much of this history that you already know, but I mean, there's the whole Ronald Reagan, one of the first things that he did was fire all the the unionized um, uh, air traffic control workers. I want to go through all this stuff. Okay. Uh, Let's assume a lot of people don't know, because to me, the story here, again, you you did go back to literally the 1600s, and I'd love to (laughs) get there as well, but the, the, the real crux of the issue we sit at at the moment starts post-World War II to me because we see America as the dominant power, capitalism in this country leading the world, and we see suddenly more global connectivity, technology improves. By the 60s, you even get TV and mass media and things like that. And it slowly milks its way towards the public stocks running the country because they're also buying off the politicians and then they're getting through legislation. And and this is the real thing. Like when we're talking about NAFTA mm-hmm. and all these other deals, we all hear all the politicians talking about this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sounds bad. But a lot of us, including me, have never like sat there and read the full law, the legislation and, nice. and, and the treaties and what they are. And yeah. you get into that in your book. So let's – you okay. start at the top wherever you want, but all let's right. go through all of it. All right. So Ronald Reagan came into office actually while the air traffic controllers were trying to negotiate a better deal for themselves. And they were, you know, government workers, and so they were forbidden from striking. But when he came into power, they did anyway. So, I mean, mm. it's it's kind of a fuzzy story, but it's considered – the the er moment, right? Like the beginning of anti-union um, uh, politics um, yeah. at the top, and so they come in, and so so Reagan comes in, and um, they they strike, which means there are no planes flying in the sky. They can't because they need air traffic controllers, and they assume that they've got the country by the balls and that they're going to get everything that they want because they're necessary workers. And um, Ronald Reagan just fires them all. <laughs> now, whether or not he should have done that, um, whether or not, you know, whether or not that was the right decision, um, it happened, and it sent a strong signal. The signal it was like a dog whistle that that a lot of you know executives were waiting for, which is, oh, no, we finally have somebody in the White House who is not going to kowtow to unions anymore, and. Mm. That was really that was a really really big move, and also in the eighties, in which I lived, you know, <laughs> there was a huge I shift. <laughs> I know you're lucky. It was a terrible terrible decade, and I will I will put that on record. But um, there was also this major shift from um, pensions to four hundred one k's. So the idea mm. is. Let's get the median worker. By the way, median worker is now the word for middle class. You can't say middle class anymore. There's a new word for everything, guys, and I'm like God just damn. catching up, right? Okay. Yeah. So, I don't know if I'm going to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> you can't catch up because it's constantly moving. That's what I love about language. But um, yeah, so the idea was um, let's get these median workers out of the pension model so that they start to invest directly in. Wall Street in the stock market, and then they will be forever tied to to the success of the stock market. Correct, right? And then if corporations decide to 
offshore at some point, that's okay because at least the profits are there and the value is still there. And in fact, you know, Wall Street will boom, will continue to boom Mm -hmm. as we find cheaper and cheaper ways to make things, greater and greater profits, higher executive compensation, and the market remains healthy and actually grows. And so we saw a huge boom in the 80s. I mean, that wasn't quite when offshoring started. It had just begun. But but the the infrastructure was being set up for us to be thinking that way, that like it was okay to let go of a lot of the things that had held us together for so long, things like unions, things like communities, things like pensions, the things that tied us together. It was okay to let those things go as long as the economy through 401ks, through the stock market, you know, through executive compensation continued to be healthy. See, there's when you look at the history of who holds office, though, in America, I always remind people that it's a pendulum, right? So Kennedy slash LBJ, right? Or let's go on this side. Kennedy slash LBJ, Nixon, Ford. Mm. Carter, Reagan. Reagan got another four years of Bush. <laughs> then Clinton came in, uh-huh. right? And so on, you, so on and so okay, on. Okay, yeah. But, yeah. But to your point. There are precedents that are still set by given administrations that then kind of go bipartisan and follow party lines moving forward. Absolutely. So that's why we see, you know, people would look at it in history and say, oh, Reagan, Clinton, Republican, Democrat, so different. Not not really. They kind of ended up doing the same thing. Oh, and it's because absolutely. of what happened right there. And I think Reagan also, historically speaking, had a pendulum moment to do this where you're going to overreact because he's following up all the economic crisis with Carter. Mm. And so that's – I mean look what happened in 09. Look at Dodd-Frank and all these things that got set. No matter if they went too far or didn't, it's like we got to fix this. This is what we're doing. We're putting down the iron fist and now – forget what's going to happen in the future because of it. Yeah, actually, you make a really, really good point. And when you when you say, like, when you're doing this, right? Like, oh, we have the Republicans, and we have the Correct. Democrats. But actually, I want you to remember that when the AFL, AFL-CIO building opened, I think, in 1955 in Washington, D.C., it was this beautiful building. It was, you know, for the largest um, union organization in the United States. Who opened it? Who was there ribbon-cutting? It was Eisenhower, mm. okay, a Republican president. And, his, and I actually quote some of his um, speech in, in the book, but he was just saying, like, this is America. People yeah. who make things, yes. labor, right yes. here. And the, the, uh, the AFL-CIO actually has, an, has their main headquarters right across from the White House. So it's like capitalism, labor, um, government – it was always one thing. It ha- I mean, not always, always, always. I mean, if we're going way back to the founding of America, it was a, it yeah. was a mess. Yeah. But, um, yeah, in the 50s when, what was it? At least, um, I, I'm going to, I'm like blanking, but at least a third of Americans were part of a union, mm. right? And now um, union representation, I think, is at about 5%. So... Being a member of a union was part of being American. Um, producing things was part of being an American. 
Um, and whatever that meant. I mean, you could be an accountant, but you or, or an ad man or mm-hmm. um, a salesman. But whatever you were doing was part of working with products and services that were homegrown. Yes. And that's the big difference. I, I always, w- with the union thing, I am not anti or pro-union. I'm pretty middle ground on it. I would like them to exist for sure. And it's because of the reasons you laid out. I think I think the workers who put in the labor that allows capitalism to exist have to have rights. The problem with this, and I think it's the problem with almost everything in society, is that we can never have it in the middle ground equilibrium. <laughs> it always has to be one way or the other. So like you look at some of the earlier days of post-World War unions, who owned them? The mob, well, right? I mean, right? In you, some well, cases. In some cases, but you know what I mean. This is this is the labels that people put on. You look at the skyline over here. None of those buildings went up without uh, the okay, the mob. Not, that's true. Not, the, not that's necessarily true. the people in the union. It's okay, not their well, fault. Well, let's talk about how the mob got involved in the union because I think this is let's a really it. interesting yeah. history. Um, and again, let's, it's going to be a New York City story, so I apologize for people who live elsewhere. But I mean, obviously, <laughs> this is a New York story. Um, so... When the unions were trying to coalesce power among people um, in, in you know, the Garment District and other places in New York City in the 30s now, let's go to the 30s, 40s, um, it was extremely difficult because obviously the, the small business owners really didn't want the union to come in. Mm-hmm. And there's a long history of them physically blocking and assaulting union leaders trying to unionize shops because the truth is that if every if if the if half the shops are unionized it's a problem if no union shops are unionized obviously that's what it is if all shops are unionized then you can start to set standards right it becomes very difficult when you have some shops that are and some Correct. shops that aren't yeah so the unions had a lot of organizers and they were risking their lives to get into these places and talk to workers and say, we can represent your interests. We can build community. We can help you take care of your family and have a better future. Um, and that was not desirable. There, was, there were people who were very much against this. Mm-hmm. And they paid off the politicians and the police. So the organizers were murdered. They were beaten. They were they were <clears throat> they were killed, and they're typically those murders and beatings were not solved because the politicians and the police were in the pockets of manufacturers um, and other business owners. They were also in the pockets of the mob. Mm-hmm. Now the mob had gotten really strong during prohibition. Right? So we didn't really have a strong mob, I would say, until Prohibition. Suddenly this became like a very, very professional organization, which already had the politicians and um, law in their pockets, right? Like they had a whole infrastructure for taking care of these guys. When Prohibition is uh, repealed in 1933, these guys need new things to do, right? Mm -hmm. How did they use their power that they've already amassed and all their connections and all this money? So they they do all kinds of things. But one of the the things they do is union bust. Mm. Okay. So the cops and the politicians and the attorneys general and the DAs are not going to protect the union leadership from physical harm. We know this. Mm -hmm. Who will? The fucking mafia. Mm. The mob. So the mob plays both sides. So you pay, you pay protection money to the mob to keep the union leaders from coming in. 
And the union leaders have to pay protection to the mob to, to protect themselves from getting right. killed. Um, once the mob gets into y- unions that way, they start to work their way into leadership. What does the mob want more than anything is all those pension dollars. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to control. It's a, it's a hefty amount of money. They want to be con- they want to be able to control where that money gets invested. They want their taste. They they do though <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so don't forget that it's pension money that built Las Vegas through the mob. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. We know that. Yeah, I've seen Casino. Okay, right. <laughs> because there's this huge amount of money. The mob is now all involved. Like, you can't you can't extricate the mob from the unions at one point. I, I, I mean, they're, they were still very much above board unions, and unions were still doing important work. But that's how we get to this place. Mm. That, you know, it was an honest effort on, a, on, on, the, on, the, on the shoulders of so many honest people who found themselves completely at the mercy of mercenaries in this form of the mob who were willing to protect their interests in return for all kinds of compromises that ultimately ended up with you and me sitting here in 2023 going, well, the unions are just all wrapped up in the mob. (laughs) (laughs) If you're trying to navigate market turbulence, why not set course to the Noble Gold Investments Safe Haven? With global uncertainty looming, your savings and retirement plans are under siege. But there's one asset that stood the test of time gold. So unlock the peace of mind that comes with owning gold, the ultimate safe haven. And if precious metals are new to you, Noble Gold Investments will hold your hand throughout the entire process. Why? Because they have a team of experts who will guide you every step of the way to safety. Thousands of investors have sheltered their retirement savings with Noble Gold Investments. So don't leave yourself completely exposed to the markets right now. It's way too risky. With gold at an all-time high and looking to climb further, it's the perfect time. To open a Noble Gold Investments IRA and secure Secure your future along with a free gold bullion coin. Act now before it's too late. Go to noblegoldinvestments.com slash Julian Dory or call 877-646-5347. And if you do so right now, Noble Gold Investments will also give you one free three-ounce silver American virtue coin as well. Once again, that's www.noblegoldinvestments.com slash Julian Dory or simply hit the link in my description below. So head there now and open up your own gold IRA with the only gold company I trust. Yeah, I don't I, I think there's and and I think pop culture has actually done a good job of showing that there's significant pressure. It's not like a lot of the when when that does happen, and again, this isn't everywhere, as you said, but when that does happen, it's not like they have a choice. They don't come in and say, Hey, you guys want to work with us today? <laughs> yeah. You no, know, they walk happens. in and they say, Listen, <laughs> fucking Vinny, there's a bat, you know, make sure yeah. this guy's straightened out. Yeah. You know, that's that's what it is. But all these whether that's just one example, but all these different things, I think, led to, you know, maybe this perception of all unions that is not right. You know, when 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 people are pure anti-union, I constantly will get in arguments with them like, well, don't you think people should have a right to be able to not see their job shipped overseas or to be able to have proper coverage if they got injured and stuff like that like who represents them that's who represents them it's like when you have an athlete he's represented by an agent that's right you know what's to well, me and what's the union the di- i mean all exactly. athletes are unionized <laughs> yes but i'm saying like even at the front half of that before that he even has his own guy so why shouldn't you know the average american worker at least have a group that that can get behind him i'm i'm, I'm with that but in the midst of all this you laid out what happened with reagan when he got in yeah. and we go through those years we get into bush one and clinton this is where all the the NAFTA 
right. stuff happen. So can you right. just explain this <laughs> like we're all sure. fifth graders with this? <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Um, okay, so basically the culture has shifted. By the time Reagan is has Alzheimer's, um, yep. you know, uh, a lot of Americans are now anti Union, whether or not they benefited from actually every American has benefited from unions. I mean, that's why we have weekends. But there's been a huge cultural shift away from um, unions and um, and and a strong interest in profit because our four hundred one ks are going to go up. Right. You know, any middle class voter wants the economy to be healthy, whatever that means. You know, whatever price we pay for that. In the long run. Um, and most politicians now are free trade thinkers. Um, that that sense that, you know, we have to let the market be free to be what it wants to be, that there's some kind of like natural stasis that we'll be able to reach if we move all these regulations from it. It's a, it's a magical thinking, frankly. Um, but it was very much the zeitgeist. Like, free the markets. They will self-regulate. And then I don't know what happens. Nobody really knew what happened, but it was supposed to be a good thing. Like, we're for freedom, right? Like, you're American. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're, you, you like freedom. I yes. like freedom. Yeah. So, like, free the market. That sounds good. It has good free right there good, in the name. Good marketing plan. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, a really, so NAFTA is a really interesting piece of legislation. It, it, it was kind of like a let's test this out. Let's, let's, see, let's, let's see how much people are willing to take – in terms of free market thinking. Keep pull up NAFTA, Leslie, just while we're at it. Okay, yeah, Keep fact going. check me on this. So um, <laughs> so the idea was that we were going to create, to create our first free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada and basically lower all tariffs um, and um, obstacles to allowing businesses to manufacture abroad, but, but you know, ad to adjacent countries. Um, and then the idea was that then we would be able to export and to to these countries. So, okay, let's just make this real. So, like Whirlpool is making um, dishwashers in Indiana, and they say we can make dishwashers in Mexico just as easily as we can make them in in Indiana. And by for the way, less. yeah, for less definitely because the peso, you know. And um, also, by the way, this is going to be really great because then Mexicans are going to have money in their pocket and they're going to buy American goods. That was the dream. That was the dream. So we're going to boost others' economies by exporting what we do, which is make stuff. Their economies will be boosted, then they'll start buying our stuff. But if we're not making things, then they can't buy things that we make. They're going to – anyway, you can see how it, yes. it kind of breaks down real fast. Okay. There were only a few voices who said, whoa, whoa, hold on. Like, of course it's going to be cheaper to – oh, am I, like, going no, off level? No, you're good. Okay. You're good. I'm, I'm always watching the levels. Okay. You're, like, so aware of everything. <laughs> My husband is a record producer. There you go. All okay. Right. So, so, you know. <laughs> so, um, so they were, like – so, so there were just a few folks who were like, okay, wait a minute. The reason that it's so cheap to make it in Mexico is not just because the peso is a different currency, it trades at different rates, but also because they do not have a strong union culture there. And the union mm. culture that they do have there is actually Cartels. pretty corrupt, <laughs> exactly. And there's 
no environmental regulation. So we love that in America, right? And they don't have OSHA, which is you know here about worker safety. You know to make ensure that things are done properly. That you know you're wearing. Uh, headgear to make sure you're, you don't blow out your ears and mm-hmm. you're not inhaling mercury all the time. So they don't have that. there's so many things that the Mexican, the Mex- Mexicans don't have, which would make manufacturing more expensive. And so what the unions and um, senator, senators like Sherrod Brown over in Ohio tried to do was get some of the language into the treaty that said, no, 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 wait, you, you need to ensure that you need to you need to guarantee workers' rights. You know, trying to like level the playing field just a little yeah, bit yeah, in yeah. terms of environment and workers' rights vis-a-vis like Canada and, and Mexico and Central America, where ostensibly all this manufacturing was gonna go. And in the middle of this, with this deal, as you said, they're basically gonna be pulling back on tariffs, which is what we do to basically reset the Ensure that there's an even opportunity cost. I'm explaining this a little wrong. To have a similar price based on if if something is or a better price based on if something is made here or somewhere else. So they're getting exactly, rid of that. yeah, exactly, yes, like yes, lower all the barriers that make free trade possible. Which, by the way, this chart that you have is right that at the amazing. Your book, this chart's incredible. I'll hold it up to the camera, but it's the average U.S. Tariff rate from 1821 to 2016, and it looks like the Grand Canyon. <laughs> you know, it just goes backwards. But anyway. Yeah, that was absolutely astonishing. We could talk about that because the, the history of getting American man- Americans manufacturing in the first place is the history of America. Yeah. But we can talk about that. Um, anyway, where was I? Oh, right. So... <laughs> So, the, so right. So, um, so these voices emerge, you know, um, uh, uh, legislators and um, union representatives are like, we see bad things coming out of this. But the Bush administration says, we're going to no- negotiate behind closed doors. There's, they say this to Congress. And Congress, you get no opportunity to weigh in on our negotiation. Mm. And when we finally come to the terms of a treaty with Mexico and other countries, you either buy it whole hog or you're against freedom. <laughs> That's what they do. Yeah. It was a very strange deal that Congress made. But remember, you know, at that point, everybody was pro-free trade. Like, it seemed like a great idea. Sure, let's try it. Yeah. By the way, the Soviet Union had just fallen, so, like, f- freedom was everywhere. <laughs> and um, so we got NAFTA. And NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, it's astonishing how quickly the dominoes start to fall after that treaty. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. Again, I was alive then. I saw it happening you would go to – everybody worked at The Gap when I graduated from, from college. Um, is there even The Gap? Does that exist anymore? Is yeah. that a thing? Yeah, it's still around. Okay. I got a couple Gap things in there. Do you? Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure. I mean yeah. – can you fact check that? <laughs> <laughs> I was actually thinking about The Gap yesterday. I was like, I'm going to bring up The Gap because everybody worked at The Gap. So um, you go to The Gap. This was in five years of NAFTA. You go to the Gap, and there would be piles of T-shirts with crap people are buying, including me. I, I was buying that shit too. And you would like rifle through. Remember, I'm a reader, and I'm looking at these labels, and 
it's like me- made in Mexico, made in Guatemala, mm-hmm. made in El Salvador. Like, mm-hmm. um, and and it gets and and it grows, it grows, right? Like when you start going through the stacks of clothes now, it's um, Vietnam, it's mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's Bangladesh, it's. Um, uh, I still don't know where Bangladesh is. I'm oh, really? It's yeah. it's like the the north um, easternmost part of India. It's like this little piece of. Oh, pull that up on a map. All right. <laughs> never look. Keep going. Up. But it's it, the problem is it's like very um, low to sea level, and so they they do flood a lot. And anyway, okay. Um, and Cambodia. Now you see. Um, anyway, so it, it's so uh, you're you're starting to rifle through this stuff, and stuff is made everywhere, and that happens in an incredibly short period of time. Yeah, incredibly short period of time. It's just, it's just, it's a, the the floodgates opened and then industry was gone. Now, when they're so you said this is about a five year period, so it's quick. But when the manufacturing immediately starts going over there because of NAFTA, we're now introducing human rights issues, though, because this is where I mean. In school, they taught us about the sweatshops back in the 1800s and stuff, some of which a lot of it was happening here. Right here. Now we're doing it somewhere else. Like we're, yeah. you know, I love Nike, but my Nike was Oof. made by some like slave eight-year-old kid in Cambodia. I've, I've, I do feel bad about it. I thank him for doing it, but I do feel bad about that. You know what I mean? And this is where that all started. And now it's even infected. We were talking before we got on camera. It's affected things like tech and where we talked about the cobalt mining and stuff. So all the jobs that now got that in these in these human rights massacre situations, back home, all those jobs, those people are laid off, right? Yeah, they just They're lose gone. their jobs. And the issue is that America did not have what we like to call an industrial policy. So there was no infrastructure for helping people transition now from whatever they Mm. were doing to whatever they needed to do to be able to survive. The government was just basically gone. And um, there were company towns, and we know this, like Akron, Ohio, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, one of the most depressed cities maybe in the country at this point. Um, but there were there, manufacturing had, um, you know, it was all over the country. It was in Kentucky and Mississippi and Alabama, and there were these like small factory towns that made one thing. There was, I write about um, Fruit of the Loom. So mm. there was one town in Kentucky that where Fruit of the Loom employed twenty thousand people, and that's what everybody did there. They worked for Fruit of the Loom, and then suddenly Fruit of the Loom was gone. Yeah, and what do you do? What do you do? There was there was nothing nobody was prepared for the gutting of these towns when industry left. That was and you know that was a big that was a big phenomenon with Trump too and it's one place at least for political messaging it's one of the places you have to give him some credit is how he spoke to these people. You know, I'm I'm someone who cares a lot about the environment, right? Mm-hmm. I know there's no such thing as clean coal. I know it's not good for the environment, right? <laughs> it's so an oxymoron. Would, yeah, when he would say that, I'm like, what, what are you doing? But the people who lived in those coal mining towns, and you just yeah. describe a couple other types of examples. I've been to those coal mining towns. Mm-hmm. Their father was in the mine. Mm-hmm. Their grandfather was in the mine. Their great-grandfather was in the mine. They are they are treading water right at the top, trying not to drown to get by. Yeah. And they don't know anything else because they've never been given the resources to not be a coal mining town in the middle of fucking nowhere in Pennsylvania. Right. You know? Yeah. And so I looked at this and I said, okay, these are the people 
very often who put Trump in office. And if you're not happy about that, that's fine. But you need to look at the root cause because, by the way, it's a bipartisan problem. Yeah, he was he was an outsider with this stuff, and he came in and spoke to those people because they'd been forgotten about. And how how do you solve that though? How do you go into how do we go into towns like Akron? Go, where, where was the town in Kentucky you mentioned? Yeah, I'm blanking on the town. I'm sorry, but we could. All right, the town in Kentucky, <laughs> or like the coal mining towns in West Virginia and Pennsylvania, and suddenly be like, all right, today you're going to learn what, what was the old quote like, learn to code or whatever. Today you're going to learn to code. Like, how do you go in and change the culture there for people who are doing right. nothing but making a living and doing hard work and doing their best? Right. Well, that, I mean, that's what I'm talking about with industrial policy. It, it, it's a it's a holistic look at people and work and job training, right? And so to your point, I want to actually talk about this a little bit. I mean, I don't know if now we're done with NAFTA and we're moving on to like what's happening right now. But I want to talk about can – I, can I pause this conversation and just talk about men? You can do whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'd like to talk about men in America because the data shows that men are not doing well. Mm. And this is something that I think um, traditionally liberal people have not been thinking about a lot. And I think that's where Trump got a lot of traction. Mm. Um, But the data does absolutely support that men in America are not doing well. And um, there are a million reasons, I'm sure, for this. And, you know, uh, you could bring in any thinker and they'll come up with a different theory. My view is through manufacturing. Mm. And I would say from being an educator, working with kids, there are people who aren't really made for sitting in front of a computer eight hours a day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There are kids who probably just shouldn't go to college. Not because college is a terrible idea of blah, 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 but because they're just ill-suited. Like, they'd be much happier being outside or working with their hands. Yes. I'm not being Pollyannish about it. I I mean, humans, right? I mean, for 50,000 years, we developed these in tandem with this. Yes. We love to work with our hands. We love to produce things. We love to see the fruits of our labor. And um, so, again, I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. Like, I, I don't want to act like there's some utopian solution to every problem. But I do think that there's a large percentage of the population that would feel really good about making things. Yeah. I, I agree 100 percent. And this is a conversation I actually I'll go back and forth with in the DMs with, with fans about because they it's it's good timing to do this podcast with you because it's something people bring up to me. I have one longtime fan, this guy Joel, shout out Joel, who went to trade school, right? Because yeah. he knew he knew he eventually he knew exactly what he wanted. He knew he eventually wanted to own his own contracting company, what he wanted to build, etc. He was like, wait, why am I gonna go I could go get, you know, B pluses and A minuses in college for some degree that makes me sit at a desk all day and hate myself when I'm thirty. <laughs> or I I like building shit. Yeah. I'm gonna go out and build stuff. And I you know, the 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 two words you didn't use there, but I think are right in the middle of it are the mental health with that. Yeah. This right here, this is not natural. All right. Sitting under fluorescent lights like this. Because I got to tell you, I've I was going to say, like, what, what is this light about? Anyway, yeah, this is I a mean, terrible it's, light. <laughs> it's a nice ass light, but it's a nice ass light to be on camera when you're in a studio like this. Yeah. But I, 
you know, I lived I've lived in a studio for four years. One of the reasons when I when I got my new place that I wanted to get the one I got is because it has light everywhere, natural light coming mm-hmm. in, right? Mm-hmm. I go for walks on the Hudson River every single day. Nice. Like I value this stuff because I'm like hold, like I I watch my body like shrivel up doing this. And then I think about all these people who aren't aren't lucky enough to be building something that's theirs, number one, so you're less into it with that case. They're stuck on the same salary. There's a limited ceiling that they have, mm-hmm. and they're stuck in these in these little boxes all day. And, you know, when I was first out of college, I was working on Wall Street. I remember seeing the people go outside every day, like some of the adults and adults, that's what I call it. <laughs> but they go outside and, like, go for a walk around the parking lot. And I was like, what the fuck are they doing? Yeah. And a, a couple of years later, I was like, I understand now that you got to get out, that you got to be outside of this shit. And so I, I, I remember I brought my cousin. She was coming out of college, and I, I'd been working there about three years. I brought her by the office one Saturday morning when I had to pick something up, and she was in town. And I just took her to each. You know, we, we worked in an enormous, enormous office. It was a Hi. big producing office for Merrill Lynch. So Oof. there's just desks everywhere, right? And. I walked her to different parts of the office and she was a marketing major and I just asked her to creatively tell me what she saw. And there was one particular section of the office that probably had like 60 different desks and everything's gray. I mean the shittiest, yeah. that light gray oh, that no yeah. one likes, no, know, yeah. you know, with like the fuzz on the side just to piss you off even more, <laughs> you know, on the sides of the cubicles where it's not even hard. It's like literally fuzzy. Yeah. And – but not the good fuzzy. And <laughs> you look around, all the there, – there's just drab like – whatever that's called, like computer parts of the desk, and then the computers are Dells from 08, you know, God forbid they buy you good stuff at a bank. And I'm like, what do you see? And she's like, destruction. Destruction of people. Wow. And I'm like, whoa, that's spot on. And it just, you know, they don't teach you, and I'm not blaming college for this, they don't teach you this stuff in college. Mm. But now, you know, we got to have some sort of, I'm I'm glad you bring it up, because we have to have some sort of societal awareness that it's okay to figure out that like, hey, maybe... That system right there isn't for me. Yeah. And maybe we, even if kids don't know that, we have to find ways to have conversations so that they can come to an answer that maybe they, Thank they you. think, right? Yes, absolutely. Right. So the other piece of that. So, yes, bringing back manufacturing, which will happen, um, also offers our kids different kinds of opportunities. Mm that are not necessarily tied to seeking an extremely expensive four-year degree mm-hmm. and also allows people to move up through organizations. You can really, really start at the bottom. Yeah. The um, Is it the the head of um, GM, I think? Uh, can you help me out here? Uh, she's, a, she's a woman. Mary Jo whatever, Mary Barra. Mary, Thank you. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm blanking on her name. I'm, I'm not great it? with this yeah. stuff. Mary Barra. Mary Barra. She started Mary's. at the bottom. She started. She did. I, I believe she started as a line worker. You can look that, or you know, working on the line, which yep. they don't have anymore. Right. Well, yeah, it's fading. <laughs> um, but the point is that manufa- manufacturing allows people to come in at any level. Yeah. And when you know the process, then you have knowledge that then you can use to move up. Um, Shoot, what I was that I'm blanking because I was just about to say something, but um, let's talk about innovation. Okay. Okay. How do you innovate? Become, like, how do you come up with a new idea? You put brains together and you get creative. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that is true. 
you can come up with any kind of idea you want, but in order to execute, you need to know how to make it yeah. thing, the yeah. thing. So, like, let's go back to Apple or Steve Jobs or something like that. These guys were physically building computers in their garages, right? Wozniak, yeah. Wozniak, yeah. thank yeah, you. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't actually read the book. Um, <laughs> When you think about the best innovations in the United States, even pharmaceutical companies, like where does that stuff start? How do you, how do you get a drug to market? Where does that start? That starts with people in labs, like dripping stuff yes. into other stuff and heating it and spinning it and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, doing all kinds of testing. And then ultimately you get a drug that needs to be manufactured. But the point is that the people who are doing the innovating are making. They're using their hands. They're experimenting. They're innovating. They know how to manufacture things. So they're starting from a manufacturing standpoint, yes. right? This is so computers. We talked about computers, technology, robots. The kids who are looking at robotics these days, they start by building robots, right? Yes. They don't start by like I don't know uh, pro programming robots. Like the, all the kids I know who are in robotics, they start by building them. So in order to innovate. You need to know how to build this thing so that then you can communicate with the other people who need to help you build this thing and put the things together, parts together to cr actually create. So when we gave up manufacturing, when we give up manufacturing, we're giving up this incredible like uh, uh, pot, you know, this, this stew of knowledge that's not just – I desire i want to do something but also the know-how to build it yes it's a it's a good feeling too oh it's the breath so you, see, actually, you like this table i was gonna i was gonna ask you did you guys make this we, we me and and danny jones who runs another big podcast in florida a really good friend of mine flew him up here and we built this table in a weekend and i gotta tell you when it was done i was like let's go right that feels so oh, good God, it's it amazing like, oh, I, every time i say here i'm like damn we built, we're, we're signed below it's see, cool it's right there like yeah. your pride is right there i love home depot you know what i mean home like, depot's fun and Although, that's what i'm saying like that represents <laughs> manufacturing again there you go bit, you, you know? walk in there and you're like possibility yes but you know the possibility because you've made stuff and maybe you started making stuff with your father or your mother, like your mother. I don't want to. I don't want to be like binary. So like, somebody <laughs> had to make the food, and somebody had to like fix the toilet, and so, you know that's yes. all about understanding how things work, how things go together, how to manufacture. Yeah, and so we lost that quickly with NAFTA, and then there was another big agreement another beat is wto and yes the, yes yeah, can yeah. you explain all oh, this oh god i wish i could i'm gonna try okay. <laughs> so um in 1996 we uh several countries got together i'm gonna say 130 but you're gonna fact check me maybe it was 72 i don't know lots of lots of numbers in my a lot head of, a lot of countries um got together and formed the world trade organization which in a nutshell was worked hand in hand with the free trade movement to reduce obstacles to free trade. And we were talking about obstacles like environmental regulation and labor regulation, those slow down trade. And so the World Trade Organization was there to um, help countries and companies litigate mostly companies mm. litigating against countries that they felt were slowing down their ability to make a profit. So like Interpol for capitalists. 
Oh, God, I love that. That's good, right? Can I use that? Yeah, you can okay. use that. Okay. So that's it's on that's tape. Okay. Come on, Rocky. <laughs> I'll just say copyright Julian Torrey. Okay. Okay. So um, that's exactly right. So so here, here, countries could go to their representatives and say, I mean, sorry, companies. Did I say countries? Companies like Kodak mm-hmm. could go to their American representative and say, go fucking sue Japan. <laughs> Because they're making it hard for, for us, Kodak, to penetrate the Japanese market. They are favoring their own brands, Fuji, in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. This, was, this was a big lawsuit. I guess this didn't work out with China too well, huh? Uh, well, at that time, China didn't have I know, a free trade agreement. But, I'm, but I'm Fuji, now. Well, so yeah. Fuji was actually Japanese. Yeah, yeah. No, I, oh, I know. Oh, I'm okay. talking in the future, though. Because like, we didn't do this very well with China. All our, all our companies just left. Uh, we didn't do what well? We didn't do well with if China was causing competition oh, problems, yeah. fixing it. You know what I mean? Like literally Google left China. You know, a, a lot of our companies left the market right, right there. Right, exactly. I, I was cutting ahead, but Yeah. Sorry. No, no, that's totally fine. Yeah, you're right about that. So, um, so yeah, so uh, – so, uh, so uh, a um, – a fishing cartel, a tuna fishing cartel, for example, in Mexico, sued the United States um, because – do you remember the little dolphin um, label on that tuna would, fish? And say was say, yeah, this it's was in that dolph- movie Sea C- 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 Spiracy, I think. Oh, OK. Like it's all bullshit. Well, yeah. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to go there. That's not – that's it, – it may be bullshit. But anyway – Mexico sued the United States because we had this little dolphin safe label um, because the idea was that the do- – sorry, that the tuna was line caught. So then yes, the dolphins correct. weren't getting caught in nets. But the problem is this major tuna fishing cartel in Mexico didn't use lines. Mm-hmm. They used nets. And they said that that the the labeling, that dolphin safe labeling in America was cutting in on their ability to sell tuna in the United States. They won this case. Yeah. In the in the WTO, I just want to I just want to give wow. a couple of examples of like what free trade actually looks like, and yeah. especially when you allow countries. To, I mean, sorry, again, it's important to understand companies to sue countries for making legislation that they feel is slowing down their ability to make profit in that country. And the only the countries who actually have an advantage here are the ones with the biggest GDP, like you know the top three. In that type of situation, because everyone else is, I mean, money talks. You are essentially a hostage to what they're going to support. So if if there's some sort of case brought vis-a-vis the WTO and the U.S. says, you know what? Yeah, we agree with that. And you're like, fucking Cambodia. What are you going to do? Be like, no. I mean, <laughs> you're you done. Know, it's a little bit about that, but it's a lot more about like, think about why the WTO exists at all. You know, their mandate is to ensure that no country is slowing down any corporation's ability to make money. Which is supposed to put more money into the economy and more money into people of the world, but what it ends up doing is it kind of creates a wealth gap is what you're saying. Oh, a major wealth gap. Yeah. And, and an environmental wealth gap. Well, yeah, that too. But yeah, because like we're seeing more billionaires around the world stamped every day than ever before and i was talking with someone actually it was about ai but it's the Mm, same idea here i was talking with someone about 
I don't know, five, six months ago, who was telling me that this stamping of new billionaires into eventually like trillionaires is going to keep happening over the next five to 10 years. And then the gap is going to be so wide, there's no return. And, and he said, and it was a really negative way to look at stuff, but he was, you know, just trying to give his prediction. He's like, you're going to have wealth in the hands of so few that it will control every level of go- every lever of government everywhere around the world. And politicians be paid off and the people will be left to get their you know universal basic in- income stance <laughs> in many ways that's a scary i mean i don't know why he it. doesn't think that it's already happened well it has but he's saying it's point of no return like it can't be fixed so i would point. argue that the antidote to that is manufacturing i yeah. mean again it's not just like you know to to hammer all the world is a nail like the ability to be able to make things let me back up one one click. Ten percent of the GDP of America is still manufacturing based. Yes. I didn't know it's yes, that high. We wow. are making things. We are making things. And what's really fascinating is that it's a lot of mom and pop shops. Well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's why we don't really think about them. They're not really on our radar. But there are little manufacturing factories all over this country, um, I think, and again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think they average 100 employees or less, mm-hmm. but they're making things. Um, and that is the alternative, right? That is the alternative to what you are describing, which is an incredible amount of wealth in the hands of the few. When we start to recognize that we can lift up communities and support each other by buying locally, which in this case means domestically, but then we can start to talk about actually like local manufacturing Mm -hmm. and actually even go further by creating, get this, a circular economy where your waste, so like all your plastics and Mm. um, glass and other things are then being recycled uh, especially here in New York, you could easily do this, you know, recycled maybe on the periphery of New York and then sent back into industries here in New York. Like that's the circular economy right there. That's what Eric Olson is working on. It's like the exact thing. Oh, really? Yeah, this yeah. guy I had on the podcast, I'll show you. I'll oh, show wow. You afterwards. He's yeah. doing, he's, he came from big oil, left it. It was his first job out of college and was like, wait, there's a middle ground solution here. And he he's basically building these things that measure for plastics and waste. So that it could be collected and then re, I mean, recycled, but there's all kinds of other terminology with it to be reused within the same place. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. That's super real. I mean, the Chinese don't want our trash now anyway, so we got to get rid of it. So instead of burying it, Mm -hmm. if we actually manufactured here, imagine now you have a buyer for all of this waste. If we can figure this out. So there's actually a company in um, New York City. I think it's called, um, you can look it up, uh, Ice Stone. Ice Stone. Ice Stone. And they make beautiful countertops out of recycled glass. Whoa. Yeah. And I think they're in the, is it the Brooklyn Yards, Brooklyn Navy Yards? That sounds right. I mean, yeah. okay, here yeah. we go. I, made in USA. Wait, look they're at making it out of glass? Yeah, recycled glass. So wait, that thing... Right there. I mean, it's it's got probably polymers and all kinds of stuff Whoa. in it, but yeah, that's and it's and it's all made right here. It's it's made in Brooklyn, New York. Let's go. I mean, this is not tough stuff. Shout like, out to Ice Stone. Yeah, shout out to Ice Stone. <laughs> My point is, this is not hard. It's actually not hard. It's well, actually can I, can I challenge very that? simple. Okay, go ahead. Or if sorry, you, as the Philly girl would say, go ahead. 
<laughs> I forgot you're from Philly. Go ahead. What's the how do you compete on some of this if you're competing with a ten year old working for fifty cents in, in Vietnam? Right. Okay, so first of all, like Vietnam is is doing really really well. And it's no longer be gonna be viable to manufacture in Vietnam. All at right, some Bangladesh. Point. So that's going to keep happening, right? So it's always – when you're talking about offshoring, it's like always a race to the bottom. And that's another thing that I write about is free capital just coming into countries, assaulting them with a ca- you know cash, and then boom, they're gone, which right. we saw during the pandemic. Um, how are you going to – well, first of all, when you're talking about something like countertops, that shit is heavy, right? Yes. Okay. It's so, hard to get here. When you think about the infrastructure required to get stuff to the United States, you start to think about how, how it's analogous to, like, the fossil fuel industry. So the fossil fuel industry, in order to function in America, is um, subsidized by the government. It's extremely expensive to extract fossil fuels and refine them, right? Both, both actually economically and environmentally. Sure. Okay? So – Following NAFTA, following all this free trade zeal, a whole infrastructure has been designed to get goods into the United States, right? And it's a very expensive infrastructure. It's about, and this goes to my first book, it's about shipping and ports and highways and um, widening the Panama Canal Canal, and dredging uh, New York, New Jersey port Mm -hmm. and – Raising bridges so that you can get these supermax ships in. Yeah. In so, so that's the expenses that we don't think about. Yeah. When it comes to what are we actually paying for as Americans when we import all these things? Back to the countertops. This is a big, heavy thing. Might as well just make it here. Probably you're saving thirty percent on transportation costs. So I would imagine that they could compete pretty well with countertops made in other parts of the world. So let me ask this then. Yeah. Is this a problem we can solve by doubling down on strengths and just eliminating weaknesses? Mm. And let me put an image on that. Doubling down on things like countertops and heavier stuff that would be expensive to get in here and just completely saying fuck it with clothes. Okay. Good question. Because your book is about... Apparel. Yeah. Which is that's why I'm asking. Which is like the lowest common denominator. To make apparel, all you need is a worker and a machine and some other stuff. Let's and a sweatshop. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need a sweatshop. Um, I think that we can make anything here. I really, really do. And that's actually why I focused on apparel. What's happening in manufacturing, of course, we know this, is AI and robotics, mm-hmm. right? So... In almost every industry, there are fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer workers. So what you actually need is space, electricity, robots, um, and you need people to, to service the robots. And then everything that, that spins out of that, you need people to sell the stuff and market the stuff and carry the stuff to the end buyer and you know whatever it takes. So as manufacturing becomes so much more sophisticated – remember, I live in Boston, so I, I'm right there at MIT. They're, they're – crazy building robots all the time. Oh, yeah. Do all kinds of weird stuff like the headless dog. I don't yeah, know if yeah, yeah. that's the Boston whatever group. Boston Diamond. Boston Robotics. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, I'm very well aware. 
But, you know, the, the bar for robotics is getting lower and lower and lower. And so these trade schools should be teaching robotics because what we will be able to do extremely well as Americans with our sophisticated manufacturing infrastructure is tons of customization. Mm. Um, we can also, so we can respond also very, we will be able to respond, respond very quickly to market changes. So for example, if you are making a pharmaceutical product and you have kind of a robot army doing the man, a lot of the manufacturing, you have these people coming in who have robotics training, not necessarily a four-year degree from a college, but actually they got voca vocational training. They can quickly read, read set up the shop floor to produce something new or introduce a new reagent. So re robots are becoming much safer to work with. It's also the bar for program, sorry, programming them or customizing what they do is, is becoming easier. Mm -hmm. And so we can make anything. We will be able to make anything, anything. And I think it's really important to be able to make anything because what you make versus what you import will completely dictate your politics. Yeah. Our Discord and Patreon links are in the description. We are starting to do AMAs on Discord. And we are also now releasing a new show called The Julian and Alessi Show with my producer, Alessi Aleman, on Patreon, along with some other exclusive content from episodes that we have been putting out on YouTube that are not seen on YouTube. If you're not making your own pharmaceuticals, and by the way, we don't. So 90 percent- problem. 90% of our pharmaceuticals come from India and China. Huge problem. We know it is now. It's funny, when I was, when I was um, doing book talks for my last book about shipping, you know, I would tell people like 90% of everything that you touch has spent some time on a container ship. Yes. And people would be like, what? You know, that can't be right. But well, I guess it depends. Like if you're someone who lives on the coast like I have my whole life, I guess, you, I, guess I take that for granted. Yeah. Because I always see the ships. Right? right. I always say, I'm used to, I'm like, oh, yeah, there they come again. That's supplying the whole fucking northern part of the state. You know, it's so funny because I was talking to somebody from Missouri. There you go. Or, or, or was it Arkansas? It, it, or, they don't have oceans there. It was pretty yeah. landlocked. Right. And I was like, when was the last time you saw a body of water? And he was like, well, like a lake. He had no idea how stuff got to him. Right. And I said, well, chances are it's either coming through, you know, L.A., like a, a huge port in L.A. Not around here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or it's coming through the Panama Canal, coming up maybe through like Nolens or Savannah or something like that, getting trucked to you. You know, um, maybe it's coming up through the Mississippi. I don't know. But like think about it, dude. Just, just think a little because it's got to come from somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's like the whole other thing too because – the recent history of this saw huge changes with COVID because – and I want to get into the pharmaceutical thing, but let's put a pin in that for a minute. But to me, if, if, if you're looking at COVID and you're like, oh, you know, trying to let this leak out of their lab and everything, that's fine. But it did kind of backfire on them, no? Because they had all the supply chains. Then they shut everything down. So companies here diversified their supply chains to other countries. Did that have any – backstream effect though on bringing some things back to america when that happened did we see the numbers that support that oh 100 percent. oh it's it's actually really wild what's happening so the the buzzword of the day is onshoring okay the opposite of offshoring yeah, yeah, yeah. um or outsourcing and companies the big ones the little ones every everybody is desperate to um protect 
their supply chain from the next disaster, whatever that'll be. And um, it's it's they found that it's very difficult, but it's worth it because nobody wants to be caught with their pants down like they were right. during the pandemic. Um, that was super embarrassing for us. I mean, we didn't have things that we need. And actually, that brings me to my book um, because I found a company that was making apparel. And they went to PPE. Well, yeah. So what? So they're making apparel. They, they were making hoodies, beautiful hoodies, extremely well-made, all-American sourced hoodies. And all of their workers were union workers. They were unionized. They were part of uh, uh, United Steel. And um, suddenly they saw with the pandemic that not only would they have to shut down, but they might die. Like they were facing bankruptcy. There was no way that they would be able to sell their goods. And so if they had to shut down for like five months, they wouldn't be able to pay their bills and they'd be done. It's a husband and wife team. Like they put everything, their heart and soul into this small company making hoodies. And so they did shut down. This is March. It's the end of March 2020. They shut down because nobody knew what this thing was that we were looking at. And then they took a minute to think. And the wife, Whitney Waxman, said to Ben, her husband, she said they were watching the news. They were looking at what was happening in New York, Mm -hmm. you know, with the nurses and the doctors. And it was was a hellscape. Mm -hmm. And the... The first responders are saying we're running out. Of, we're we're going to get to a point where we have to wear trash bags, and so Whitney turned to Ben and said, "We got to do something." And she said, "We make things. We can do this." And they brought back their workers a week later, and they said, "If we asked you to come back, and we will re lay out the factory floors so that you get the six feet, and we're going to let." put down a lot of plastic and mm. you know we didn't know how the pandemic spread but they were they were like if we did everything in our power to protect you as workers would you come back to make masks for first responders now i want you to remember that these are new americans for the most part they're coming from congo and vietnam and the ethiopia workers. the workers yes these are this new in americans in portland maine okay um many of them can't even speak English or their English is not that great. They're coming from Iraq and Iran. I mean, this was a real multinational group of new Americans, they're citizens. And um, so Ben and Whitney said to them, we understand that you are putting yourselves at risk and you could stay home and you could get checks from from the government. Every single hand went up. They said, we will come back. Wow. We will do this. And when when Ben and Whitney said, this is amazing, but why? Um, one of the guys who came from Iraq, he stood up and he said, I'm an American. I'm going to do this for my fellow Americans. Mm. Yeah, That's amazing. They did it. They did it. Because we remember back then, I mean, you just pointed to it, but people were making, it was a huge problem for all the business owners I knew. People were making more money sitting on the couch than yeah. what they were making before everything shut down and it made it so difficult for places but they got so they got this thing up and running then this is the end of march you said so the end of march they shut down by by the by early april they were they were starting to make masks and um then they were running into supply chain issues which is another what happened story well it became very difficult to get elastic for the for the earbands 
And they actually ended up running a piece in the, near, in the, in the Washington Post, an op-ed piece that said the government needs to, you know, help people who are trying to manufacture find each other so that mm. we can get this supply chain going. But fortunately, Ben came from a union background. He had worked at the AFL-CIO for a decade and knew everybody, all the leadership at the AFL-CIO. And through that network, he was able to it's, – it's uh, actually quite an amazing story. But well, let's tell it. That's what we're here for. <laughs> okay. All right. So one of the things – so they – and this is all in your book, by the way. It is. Making it in America. I mean, this is, this is the ben story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there were, no, there were no, like, patterns for developing a mask, but these are apparel workers. So they went to a friend who was a physicist at, um, I think, University of uh, Connecticut, and they said, help us design a mask from scratch. What do we need? Um, they had cotton jersey. And he said, all right, let's do a, a two-ply, so, so uh, two layers of cotton jersey, and in between, I think we should put a filter in there, a paper filter. And they said, oh, you know, what does that look like? Where are we going to get that filter? <laughs> like, what is, what is that thing? And so he created a specification for the kind of paper that he thought would be good for blocking um, what we thought we knew about COVID. Right. Remember, we, we had no information. Yeah, we knew shit at that point. And uh, this is going to blow it. Yep. So, you um, can move this like that. Oh, you can hold that. So excellent. That? Okay, yeah. There, there we go. go. All right. You just um, added a couple inches there. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I guess, how I work. I just, you know, I, f I fit to what it, I'm like a gas. I fit to whatever container I'm given. But, um, <laughs> um so, so they have the specification for paper. One thing you need to know about Maine is that they make paper in Maine. There hmm. used to be tons of paper mills in Maine. They've shut down one by one. It's not a really beautiful thing to, to make. It's, it's very messy and stinky. But anyway, through their union network, a paper mill VP reaches out to them and says, what do you need for paper? What, what does this filter look like? What, what are the specs? And they're like, oh, shit. We might have an ally here. So, it's like so, the Avengers of manufacturing. 100%, man. <laughs> so, they, so they tell him, and he's like, all right, hang on. And literally five hours later, he says, I'm going to send you a couple samples. Let me know what works for you. Sends mm. them samples. They send it to their guy. The guy says this one. Now they have a source for their filter. And where was that guy? So he that, was in Maine. He, yeah, but but he was making everything. Like, where was his supply chain? Oh, so they so paper. <laughs> I I you know I haven't gotten into it, but like paper comes from trees, obviously, and so tree pulp, mm -hmm. and so it's a very robust industry, or it was in Maine. So you know, the trees you cut down trees, you have piles and piles of pulp, um, and so paper is used in all kinds of industrial. Mm. Uh, there are all kinds of industrial uses for paper. It's not just like paper for magazines and books. And probably your viewers are like, what are magazines and books? But um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he had a product that would work. And um, so it was just like you cut it, you sell it with a mask. And their deal was if you buy a mask from them, then they would donate to first responders they ended up getting because they're union and because they were local they ended up getting like pretty huge contracts i wow. think with new jersey state troopers in fact since we're here 
in New Jersey, New York, um, and and uh, I think uh, Maine State bought you know tens of thousands, and they got big really fast because people needed these things. Wow. They were beautifully made. Um, because they had been built from scratch. Remember when I said about innovation, like you can't innovate unless you know how to make? Yeah. It's like they created this thing from nothing, but it came from all of their know-how in the apparel industry. They were also making face shields um, for first responders, so yep. it was this yep. plastic. Um, and uh, I think I think at one point they were also making gowns, and that's what kept them alive through 2020. Wow. Yeah. But they were around a while before that. Making the hoodies, right? Yeah, they've been making the hoodies for like five years before that. So what was it? And, and you met them in 2020 when they were doing this part mm. with the COVID response, and that's how the story came together. But what was the original idea here? They, I would imagine they were very upset about all the jobs going overseas, and they wanted to bring it here. So they're like, we're going we're gonna to do the easiest one, the apparel industry, which is the easiest to send overseas, and we're going to prove we could do it here. And that was it? Um. Kind of. Um, So Ben, I mentioned that he came from the Mm FLCIO. So he's a Mainer. He was was born and raised in in Maine. And um, he was sent all around the country um, during – between 2003 and uh, 2013 or 2002 and 2012 um, to represent workers. So I mentioned Whirlpool. Like he was there when the Whirlpool factory shut down down Mm. um trying to negotiate with whirlpool and the family the crown family big supporters of obama by the way um to to keep the factory open keep the jobs here so he you know he was he was in ohio he was in detroit he was like all over in pennsylvania seeing how the loss of manufacturing was just destroying communities Mm. and he came out of that decade kind of a broken man But a man who had a dream, and the dream was that we could build manufacturing, and if we did that, manufacturing would rebuild community. Like he saw how the two were so tied. So he came back to Portland, Maine, and he sat on his couch and he tried to figure out what he could build. He even thought of like becoming a a shipbuilder, believe it or not. Like he had, he was, he was willing to consider anything. Um. And one day he was like just plowing driveways for a friend. And so, because it's Maine, <laughs> and he was in his plow truck or tow truck, whatever the heck it was with the plow in the front. And um, he was wearing a, a fleece vest. And it was from some Democrats' campaign for something, I don't remember. Mm. And he goes, where the fuck is this thing made? You know? <laughs> and he's like me, he pulls it off, looks at the label, and it says, um, May it said, made in El Salvador, and he was like, "What the fuck? We can't even make a a, a fleece vest here." Right. That was made of, of a U.S. politician, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. It was made of fleece, which is which at the time was actually made in Massachusetts. Polar fleece was invented in Massachusetts by a textile company, uh, a, an eighty-year-old textile company. That's another beautiful story that's in the book. Um, so it was a, it was a local fabric, um, but the hoodie, but the fabric itself had to be cut and sewed in El Salvador. And I think that's when you realize like, this is bullshit. We can do anything. We can make our own clothes. Like, let's just start there. 
Um, also, his mother had a company that um, got shut down, right? Yeah, from NAFTA. So she actually was um, making these beautiful wool blankets and cloaks because, again, in Maine, a lot of it, Maine is like a mystery to a lot of people, but actually it was an industrial epicenter. So it, at one point, it was the shoe making capital of the United States. Um, yeah, it was, it was a huge source of paper. Um, but it was also a huge text textile state, um, and so there were these like textiles all over textile companies all over Maine that made these beautiful wool felts and fabrics. Mm. Like if you had a pool table that was covered with felt, chances Maine. were the felt was made in Maine. Yeah, Whoa. and these so these were like small mill towns. Um, again, you don't need a lot of people to make this stuff because of the Industrial Revolution. Like making textiles doesn't require a lot of people, just a lot of space and machines. How, how many people live in Maine? Can we look that up? A million. Really? Less than a million, yeah. 20,000. Oh, I was, was going to say, I thought it was like 10 people. <laughs> That's amazing. They got this whole textile thing. They didn't know anything about it. I'm well, very yeah, Jersey centric. No, no, that's way. okay. It's good that you're Jersey centric. It's good you're asking. Yeah, 1.3 million. Okay. Wow. So that's who? A lot of people. So here, I love this. I love this. This is, this is like, you like history. You're like me. You love history. Who, who were the laborers in all these main mills? What is that like a trick question? No, it's not a trick question. It's like how much do you know history, and probably you don't know much about Maine history because you're not from Maine. I don't know shit about Maine. Okay, so yeah. like, who was working in the factories? Who's who's doing like this low level factory work? The laborers. Yeah, yeah. Like, where did they come from? Maine, <laughs> Italy. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> um, they were Quebecois. They were coming from Quebec. Wait, that's like a term, Quebecois? Yeah. That's oh. how you say it? Yeah. I thought it was like Quebecer or something. Well, yeah, Quebec is a place. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought you called them like Quebecers or something like that. Oh, that's that. cute. I like that. Yeah. Well, it, Quebecois. Quebecois. Okay. All right. Been, I'll go with it. Okay. So they were from, they, were, they would come across the border yeah. just to work and they then go walk. back? They would walk. Well. Oh, they walk across the border. So Celine Dion, you remember? I know Celine Dion. You know My her? Heart, Do you know her? Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. Quebecois. Yeah. And you remember her backstory, like why we love her? The husband died. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I shouldn't ask you these questions. She did the well, Titanic. She did. Yeah. It's great. great <laughs> she song. came from a dirt poor Quebecois family. Mm. Um, so, so I don't want to get too much into it. You should have a Quebecois on your show. But um, okay. I'll get Celine in here. Okay. We'll that would be great. Happens. Yeah. You might yeah. have really enjoyed talking to her. I'd love to talk to Celine. <laughs> So the screwed up thing about the Quebecois is they were treated really, really terribly by the Canadian government because the Canadian government was English. Oh, that's right. right? They're Frenchies. I forgot about that. So the yeah. Quebecois were come up with a really derogatory name of Canada. Right. <laughs> and um, they they were fiercely French and they were fiercely Catholic as opposed to the, the white Protestant English settlers okay. who ran the country. And um, so they had... Big families, and they were farming families, and they were totally starved by by the Canadians because the Canadians truly hated them. Uh, I say Canadians, but I mean like those the other non Quebecers. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And and so yeah, they were profoundly poor. They were starving, and they were uneducated, and they would come across the border into Maine and Massachusetts. And I wanted to point out that. I don't know if you remember Maine <laughs> had a governor. His name was LePage. Do you remember? Yeah, that's not that long ago. No, it wasn't. A couple yeah. of years ago. So he was like the fat guy. He was yeah, a fat yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to fat shame anybody, but he was a heavy set gentleman <laughs> who was 
uh, proto-Trump in a lot of ways. Yeah. Interesting story. He was born in Maine, okay? And his first language, he did not speak English. His first language until he started going to public school was French. And he was born in Maine? Born in Maine. So he was like living in the warehouses with the Quebecers? Well, he, he was Quebecois. Oh, he was? Well, but I mean, was, his family was... Oh, I got it now. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah, so okay. the Quebecois um, in, many, in many ways refused to kind of assimilate in mm. Maine, and they kept themselves, and they kept their language, and they kept their culture. Another famous Quebecois, Sumi's Quebecois, is Yvonne... I'm going to show Bernard, I forget, the guy who founded Patagonia. He's from Maine. Yes, Yvonne Chouinard. Yeah, yeah. Right? Chouinard? It's something Chouinard. Yeah, Why yeah. does he have a French name? Why do all these people from Maine have French names? It's because the, their families came from Quebec. That's so interesting. Yeah. Unknown part of history for there me. There you go. Yeah. I mean, some of the flyers, like our Philadelphia flyers, they'll come from Quebec, and they talk different. They right? talk they, they, different. They, they, they totally talk different. It's not like it's not like e. It's like ew, whatever the French accent is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, because yeah. they're actually French. I mean, they're yes. French Canadian, right? And it's they speak thing. it too. It's they like do. La, la hockey. It's yeah. a real thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm butchering French right now. I'm sorry. Uh, but so they, so the Quebecers, Quebecois, Quebecois. There you go. Were the people who. Such We're, a quick like, like, what years are we talking? They first started doing this, like the eighteen seventies, eighteen. Yeah, 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 wow, yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, yeah, it does go back that far. So, literal beginning of the industrial revolution. Well, the industrial revolution started. Well, okay. yes, but when I say that, I mean like immediately post Vanderbilt and and uh, steel guy Carnegie. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah, 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 absolutely. But I mean, you know, they were they were coming down pretty early on. And um, sending money back and then, you know, people just kept coming. I mean, the situation, I've read a little bit about this. I'm not by any means an expert, but the situation in Quebec was, uh, it, like, it would, make your, it would make the hair on the back of your neck just go. That bad. Oh, yeah, it was bad. It was bad. They were really being deliberately starved. It was, I don't, I don't want to make a false comparison, but my understanding is that it was something like how the Irish were treated by, by the English. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, that's like another forgotten part of history with America. I mean, man, yeah. we had we had some we had some bad track records with immigrant groups in America. Oh, really? Kind of. You know, <laughs> we messed that up a time or ten. But okay, so they so they build that up, and then what years? NAFTA comes in early nineties, mm. but in the sixties, seventies, eighties, were the textile mills in Maine still enormous, or were they starting to fall off post World War Two a little bit? Post World War Two, okay. Um, well, I mean, a lot of things happen. Um, if you're talking about textiles, so the main textile industry was really built around wool. <laughs> mm. um, and by the way, the wool, some of it was homegrown, but a lot of it actually was coming from Australia really, really early on, which surprised me. I didn't know that. Um, so after World War Two. You know, times change. And um, all these new fibers come into being. So we start to get rayon. We get nylon. We get, like, all these petroleum product things as well. And um, I think what happened for a lot of the mills is that they didn't change quickly enough mm. to appeal to kind of this these new products. Um, and so these 
a lot of the woolens that they're making, which are, by the way, absolutely beautiful stuff. I mean, have you ever seen um, like a, a, a Hudson Bay blanket? L.L. Bean used to sell them. Yeah, can we look that up? Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Hudson Hudson Bay? I it? mean, that's what's coming to mind, but like a Hudson Bay blanket um, or Where's Melton's. Um, yeah. So yeah, sure. I'm actually wearing. Yes, I've seen that. Okay, so these are these are like woven wool products. Um, you can pass it down to your great 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 grandchildren as long as you don't have a mouth, moth infestation. Right. Um, so so these beautiful fabrics were made in Maine. So they're they're woven wools, and Whoa. I think what happened was a lot of the mills just weren't set up to make these um, synthetic goods so can you explain that to people synthetic uh, goods as as opposed yeah, so to just like, making the real thing i mean probably everything that you're wearing has a little bit of nylon in it or some kind of you know synthetic fibers mm-hmm. that either come from the petroleum industry or other things i mean this is actually a serious problem with fast fashion is that a lot of the clothing that's made through fast fashion has a strong, like, petroleum component to it, which mm. means that it's an environmental disaster waiting to happen. Okay, so wait, hold on. If you don't mind me digressing for just digress one second, because, like, that's I am, like, misdigression here. I like it. That's M-I-S-S, misdigression. Um, okay, this is a fun story. This is uh, – th- this I could not believe. So what do you do when you – when you go through your closet and you're like, okay, I want to get rid of a bunch of stuff and you put all that stuff in a trash bag and you take it to... Goodwill. Okay, you take it to Goodwill. You're a good person. You take it to Goodwill. Well, yeah, I try I'll, to be a good person. Okay, but if it's a Goodwill is closed, what's your second option? Where do people take stuff? Where do you take stuff? The homeless Maybe. shelter? Oh, you're you're a doubly extra good person. People do what Julian does. Okay, so... Yeah. A lot of people put them in these bins that are like in parking lot. Okay, you're urban, so you... you yeah. So there are these... <laughs> There are like these bins all over America in parking lots. Uh-huh. And um, it says, you know, put your used clothing here. Hmm. Uh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? You know about? what this is? Here, yeah. Why don't you pull it up? <laughs> yeah, we have those in California. I, I know what you're talking oh, about. They have a okay. bunch where they're not associated with Goodwill or anywhere, but they're just like a green, they look like a garbage can. Yeah. And you just throw it in a there. A dumpster. I've been there a few times. Okay. Yeah. It, so it that's, looks where, like... that's where you got that jacket. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> so they look like um, – I would say they look like a huge post box. Like they have – okay. or an oven even. Like they have a big handle. You pull down the handle. You like toss your shit in there and then it's right. gone and you don't think about it anymore. Right. So that stuff for the most part goes to Uganda. Why Uganda? I can't exactly tell you why Uganda. But I can tell – why Uganda. But I can tell you – that this started in the 70s, that these clothing bins would send the clothes to Uganda. And this created an incredible opportunity for Ugandans because um, they took the clothes and they made them their own. Mm. So a lot of the clothes, Americans were bigger typically than Ugandans, and, um, and they had different aesthetic than, you don't say. Than the West Africans. <laughs> <laughs> and so this whole industry popped up for repurposing goods coming, these these used clothing pieces coming from so America. So they're getting like, is this what we're talking about where it's like, you know, the Eagles beat the Patriots, but they get the Patriots yeah. win t-shirts and yes, stuff? Yes, yeah, yes. Right. Okay, so all this stuff was jumped on the Ugandan. History is a whole lot different over there. 
Yeah. Poor guys. That's true. Yeah. 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 They're like, damn, these guys are winning everything. They're winning nothing. <laughs> oh my God. That's so true. Um, so what's interesting is that when that first started happening, the Ugandans referred to the clothes that, that came from the U.S. through these bins. They referred to them as dead man's clothes because they, that was the only way that they could explain why somebody would get rid of their clothes is because they died. Because oh. that's the only way they did it. Yeah, yeah. You don't give away your clothes. They don't have like hand-me-downs and shit over there? Well, I mean... Now they do, but I, I, you know, at the time, in the seventies, when they first, when this phenomenon was okay. a, a new thing, they were like, okay, whatever the word was, fair enough, dead man's clothes. Yeah. Okay. So a whole industry pops up, right? You got you got sewers, you got dyers, you got marketers, you got sellers. I have a I have a whole bunch of things, amazing things to talk to you about this, but I don't know if we'll get to them. But anyway. Um, and um, some women actually emerge very wealthy um, because they're really good at, like, repurposing the stuff for Ugandan fashion sensibilities and selling this stuff. And then the women end up buying Mercedes. And then that ends up spawning, like, this whole – you know about this? You're, like, nodding your head. I'm nodding your head. Like, Lester, yeah, yeah, you're over here like you know the whole goddamn thing. Well, we just know because California, we talk, like, it's known just, like, how the commerce and, like, would clothes go like I grew up like we always go to Goodwill and like in my schools they always teach you like you want to donate here and give this to this so like I grew up around this this to me is like it's not like new some of it is but there's yeah. facets of it where it's like yeah I know this that's yeah. very cool yeah that's very yeah. cool um so anyway fast forward to when fast fashion starts to becoming starts to become a thing and now we got all these crap-ass clothes that we're sending over to Uganda, and the Ugandans are opening up the, the packages, and they're like, what the fuck are we going to do with this trash? <laughs> Literal trash. <laughs> Who is this fruit of the loom? They used to be good. Yeah. No, 100%. Yeah. Get this. It's literal trash. We're shipping billions of tons of it to them every year. They don't know what to do with this garbage. It ends up clogging up waterways in Uganda. So now it is a, a literal environmental disaster. You can see pictures of it. It's, can we it's pull that up? Horrifying. It's clo- so they're throwing it out and then it's clogging up. Well, there. The, it, remember, they don't have waste disposals like we do. Right. Like they can't just ship it off to some other country that doesn't want our trash. That's why they need the mafia running the waste disposal. There you go. We do I that mean, right here. You, you probably, know? the mafia could probably solve everything they very could quickly. They could probably but, solve that. Yeah. Um, so, yes, mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds of literal garbage clothing and toxic, by the way, because it's... Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, there you go. You got that. Yeah, that's, 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 that's the horror. I saw a similar type thing in Cairo when I was there. And now uh, that's just not what you're talking about, but I saw a very similar... That was sad. That's, that's horror. Yeah. Like when you talk about dystopian... Okay, that's that's dystopian. And I agree. Look at the cows. Oh yeah, it was it was so dis- it was so this stuff has so much petroleum and um, toxic dyes in it that the market, the main market where they sold this stuff in Uganda, ended up going up in flames. I think in twenty eighteen. Wow, that's. That's DEFCON 5 stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. That's scary. 
Yeah. So when people say to me, we can't make things anymore, cheap clothes, how do you compete? It's like, dude, we can't not do this. Yeah. I think that, look, I think you're making great arguments for that. What what I want to know, though, is, you know, because again, when you were coming into this with Ben and Whitney, they're seven, eight years into their business and now they're changing to something else to produce under an emergency. But obviously they had success building up to that. How hard was that to be able to do though? Because again, they're in apparel, which is like the lowest common denominator with this stuff. Like how did they how did they build a business in the first place that said we're making hoodies here in America and goddamn it it's successful? Exactly. Exactly. So they were smart. They were selling mostly to unions. Yeah. So that's what I mean about unions. Um, unions are so powerful economically um, in in many ways. The idea that unions support unions support unions. Yes. Like it's it's the antidote to what you were talking about, about the power of the individual billionaire. This is the antidote. So unions are people. They're just people like you and me who are working together to support each other. And in this case, the unions all across, across the country want to support American workers. And how do you do that? You buy American-made goods. Yes. That's one of the ways that you do it. Unions support each other. And the unions felt very strongly that everything that they purchase for their workers should be made by American wow, workers. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. So that So they... That's their biggest Again, buyer. Again, he had the AFL-CIO connection because he was there for so long, so they were able to get that off the ground. I mean, through the AFL, through his work with the AFL-CIO, he knew a lot. Of, so remember, unions are people all across the country, and you know, every industry has locals. So it wasn't like he could just go to Mister Big Man Union and say, "Buy all my stuff," and then you know, his job was done. Like Ben spends. A huge part of his year traveling from small local convention to small local convention, speaking to individual unions, doing all kinds of things um, to sell his goods. And so he has his job really is to um, let people know that if they want to buy swag or uniforms or whatever it is, for their folks that there is a company out there, a union company, making clothes in America. Does he look at this like – because, again, he did have – through his work, he had that connect to be able to do that. Does Ben today look at this as realistic to expect of, say, the company that's starting up in apparel to get off the ground if they don't have a connection like that? right. So I think the answer, well, first of all, we do, I mean, you're from L.A., you know, like there's huge apparel manufacturing in L.A. I mean, if stuff is, if you get apparel made in America, chances are it was made in L.A. I mean, you remember American Apparel? I mean, that was a huge oh, company yeah, yeah. until they shot themselves in the foot. Um, but now they're back. Um, they're back? Yeah, they're hmm. back. Um, yeah, they, they, they're they're, well, uh, Are they called Bangladesh Apparel now? No, 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 no. They're still making um, right, right there good. in LA. All right, um, cool. There's also um, a company called um, uh, Bell and um, – oh, my gosh. So sorry. I cannot remember. Um, uh, yeah, pause for a sec. Bell and oh, – What are they called? Are They're you talking like an apparel company? Yeah, they make T-shirts. Um, 
T-shirt company, L.A. Bell. B, like B-E-L-L, like it sounds. I believe so, yeah. And Luna? The... Bell? No. That's oh, massive. Broken Bell? Nope. Sorry. Maybe it's not Bell. It's not uh, coming up on Google either? Big T-shirt company. I just put massive clothing line, Bell. And... Yeah, maybe it's not Bell. Why am I blanking on this? It'll come to you. I know, but I really want to remember. Was it in your book? Uh, yeah, probably. Cited towards the back. See, this is what I love about I books. I have not read my um, index, in. I have to admit. You're in, well, your index is long. <laughs> Bella and Canvas? Oh, yeah, that's it. Oh, there it is. Oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> All right, so there's this massive company called Bella and Canvas, in, and they're based in L.A., and they do tons of manufacturing in L.A., and they are doing the T-shirts. They're doing T-shirts, and um, I think they make also sweatshirts and all kinds of stuff. So manufacturing happens in the United States. Apparel manufacturing happens in the nice, in the United States. People are paid for making apparel in the U.S. There's no question about it. Um, I think, you know, what are the hurdles that you have to, have to overcome to be successful? Um, I think, first of all, you need to come up with some pretty decent branding, you know, if somebody's just looking for a basic tea, you can go to Bell and Canvas. I mean, they compete, right? Now, some of their stuff, a lot of their stuff is actually manufactured or, or it's cut here, but it's it's sewn in, um, I think, El Salvador or somewhere in Central America. But um, but they do do sewing here. But the point is, you can do it here. There's a matter of scale and there's a matter of marketing. And that's where I go back to innovation. Like, you're wearing a T-shirt. It's beautiful. I love it. I don't know where Thank it's you. made, but it was... Shout out to my boy, Brian Kern. Yeah, it's cool. Where was it made? And what did you pay for that? Th well, okay, maybe he gave it to you. What does that say, Leslie? <laughs> it's going to say China, I bet. Let's see. This was like a Honda. No, not China. Them. Nobody made makes it. Made in Honduras. There you go. There you go. Well, okay. that's close to America. It's like in the Americas. That's know. NAFTA. That's we're NAFTA we're hanging in there. Got to give them some credit, you know. How much, how much would that retail for? I mean, I got it for free. Brian's the homie. Shout out, Brian. All right. Hey, Brian. Probably 30 60? bucks. 30, 40, somewhere in there. With the printing on it? Yeah. 40? Yeah, I hope I didn't lowball Brian, but yeah. Are fine. you telling so, – so, right. So are you telling me that we can't make a long sleeve T-shirt for $40 I don't know. In America? You tell me. No, it's absolutely possible. But what's the difference? But the diff after, after cost of, right. of labor and shipping yeah. from – wherever the fuck, somewhere else, what's, what is, what kind of spread are we still looking at when we're operating at the minimum cost here in America? Right. So that's a golden question. So first of all, about 30% of the cost of any good that you buy is, is transportation. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. 30%. So remember when I said it's kind of like the oil, the petroleum industry where there are all these hidden costs that we don't yes. know? That's one of the hidden costs. There's so much tariffs, um, Inf and, and shipping costs and warehousing costs and stuff that's in that imported good that you're paying for if you buy it mm -hmm. that would be eliminated or severely cut down on if it had been made domestically. Right. So maybe you're looking at 5% versus 30 because they still have to like 
truck it somewhere and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So you're not bringing it internationally through customs. Right. And all that. Okay. Exactly. Now, the other thing that's happening, and this is this was the big reason that we got into free trade in the first place, was for more profit, right? Oh. So if people were – now, I know I'm asking a lot – but if executives weren't getting 300 times the average worker's rate, right, if we somehow were able to regulate that, then we would be more like in the 1960s when we were making stuff in America and executives were making 20 times the, the average worker's not yeah. 300 times. Yeah, and in I agree. some it's case, too a much. thousand. I agree. It's too, the average is way too much. I agree. That's another one I, I struggle with. How are we going to fix that when there's so many other countries around the world who will create some sort of impetus for people to be able to make their money offshore with that, right? right. Like CEOs, they're trying to make money, right? So yeah. now they're going to recover that somewhere else, be, be a something as simple as a tax haven, whatever it might be, Right. you know, declare residency somewhere else. How do we fix that? Well, what I'm saying is that if you wanted to start making a T-shirt here in America, you could easily do that. And You're kind of selling me on that. Okay. Yeah. Great. Let's do it. Yeah. And you could sell that T-shirt for $40 or $30, or in the case of American Giant, you can sell it for $7 or $5. Like, it is entirely possible to come up with a, with a very inexpensive product here in America. You can do that. How much money do you want to make? If you want to make a lot of money... You become supreme. And supreme isn't, I don't think they're made in the United States, but like slap some kind of crazy branding thing on it and get, I don't know, some Taylor Swift to wear it. Right. Start as skaters and now look at them, you know? (laughs) You know, and and just go bonkers. Most of cosmetics, by the way, are made in America. Look at all these incredible young brands that we have. Um, Glossier is an American company. Um, uh, Glow Recipe, these are all things probably you don't know because you don't shop at Sephora or whatever. But like these things are I'm all made aware in America. Of what Sephora is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, so the idea is like there are so many industries that are made in America. It's not impossible. We can do it. Um, how much profit do you want to make? If you want to make a ton of profit, then you gotta be really clever about branding. But um the 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 fact is ripping off the worker does not necessarily create a cheap product. When you when you rip off the worker, it means there's more money in profit to goose an executive's oh, I pay. I understand. Okay. Or, you know, oil that goes into, you know, um, transportation costs or whatever else. Um, but ripping off the worker is kind of the last thing that you do to, to squeeze the last little piece of profit out of the good. Meaning they're not sending shit to Cambodia to sell the 40 buck for 30 bucks now they're selling it they're sending it to cambodia to sell it for 40 but make more money on that 100 percent. okay and when you go i think that's accurate and when you go to oh my god what where do people shop now i don't even know but like <laughs> j crew now is back kith. or banana republic what's i don't even know what that is kith is that a thing yeah okay yeah, yeah. i'll Sorry. trust you we should we we should get ronnie <laughs> i was thinking about this because no, we're, we're here now we should get ronnie fegan here and talk with him about this stuff I'd love to know his thoughts on that because I'd love to talk with him. He's the he's the director over at Kith, but like high end brands like that, Kith is like. Some people are gonna yell at me for not explaining this right, but the way I look at it is, it's kind of like a sleeker, little more elegant Supreme. Oh, like, I, okay. like I like Supreme a lot. Yeah, Kith is like a. Yeah, that's how I'd say it. Okay, so where I was heading with that, 
and maybe you can back me up here, is that that shit is expensive. It's very, very expensive, yes. Okay. And it's not made here? I'd have to double check, but I'm fairly confident it's not. Okay. So we are paying a lot of money for stuff that is not made here. Yeah. Now, you know, maybe I shouldn't have brought up Kith, though, for that. It's still relevant. I still want to talk to him about that to see what we could do there. But with Kith and and Supreme and some of the more clubbish, I guess you could say, type brands, there's also the whole added cost of your paying – to be like in, mm-hmm. right? There's a limited supply on stuff. Got it's it, more yeah. like you're a part of the clique. Whereas I think what we need to focus more on here for Basics. this particular conversation is yes, are we talk about the gap, talk about companies like that, mm-hmm. that you go to the mall, you buy stuff. It's not like, oh, there's a drop of like 30 of them coming out, line up around the corner. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's a difference between an Air Jordan and, you know, like some really nice Nikes. They're a different vibe. Okay. Right? So. That's probably fair to say, but your point still remains because all these other companies are making that vig right there, basically. Right. Okay. So wait. Okay. So good. So I'm glad we're talking about this because let's talk about underwear. So let's talk about Fruit of the Loom, which used to make all the underwear in America. Right. It was Fruit of the Loom and it was Hanes. Right. And then there was the underwear war. <laughs> right. And my homies over at Sheath, they're in there now. They they're making underwear? Show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, um... It was Hanes versus um, Frulum, and this stuff was made in America. And then Walmart came in. Oh, fuck Walmart. Yeah. You want to talk about Walmart? Oh, we're going to talk about Walmart <laughs> okay. for sure. So Walmart, as you know, started putting up stores everywhere and putting all the little stores out of business. And so Walmart ended up becoming a purchasing behemoth. So they mm. the ba- the way they were keeping their prices down was obviously first of all by eliminating competition by eliminating all the little purveyors all around America, but also they rem- they kept prices down by becoming a massive purchaser purchaser of yes. manufactured goods control of the market it's like cornering the market right so instead of at some point instead of the manufacturer saying we're producing tidy whities at $4 a pop, Walmart was coming in and saying, you have to produce this thing and sell it to us for three fifty. Yes. Figure it out. Yes, and if you don't, we'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge problem. That was a reality. That was a reality that also forced all these companies to really think very hard about NAFTA. What is the – I don't know if we can look this up, Alessi. <sighs> What percentage of GDP do the Fortune 100 companies in America account for? I don't know if they'll have a chart for this, but the point is it's going to be a a pretty high, uncomfortable number. Yeah. So when you think about that. The purchasing power. In 2022, the group generated $16.1 trillion in revenue, representing about two-thirds of the U.S. gross domestic product. That that was higher than I thought, for the record. So that's a lot. The point is, they run the world. They run this country. Yeah. Because they get to, they get to set the price. Right. That's the oligopoly right there. And they squeeze the manufacturers, and and this is happening in Bangladesh and all around the world. Is that these small manufacturers are looking are facing exactly the same thing that Americans 
faced in the 1980s, which is make it cheaper, figure out how to make it cheaper, and if you don't, we'll, we'll leave. And that's what capital does. It leaves. So as soon as Vietnam, you know, when, when workers make too much money, the capital is going to go leave and, and going to go somewhere else where it's just cheaper, and it's just a race to the bottom. But the other thing that I was going to mention was when, when um, Haynes and Pretty Loon were making underwear, um, there were mostly women in these small towns who were supporting their kids and sending them to college on um, on salaries uh, on on underwear making salaries. Sure. Um, they were actually making a very good living, and they were good at what they did. They were highly trained, extremely skilled underwear manufacturers. Um, you could do that in those days because you were. You were protect, protected. The the minimum wage, correct, was in some ways more tied to reality, and so the cost of a pair of underwear. Like, could those women then purchase the thing that they made? Yes, they could, because they were making a decent living. The underwear um, by making the underwear, and the underwear was priced accordingly, and mm-hmm. everything just kind of worked. Until it didn't, until this incredible movement toward monopolization and, you know, Walmart putting the squeeze on manufacturers. Well, here's another problem, too. Yeah. Look at our minimum wage in this country. It needs to be higher for people to actually be able to buy stuff now, right? This is something – and I – and I listen, I hear all these politicians fighting over it because it's hard. You, you got to fill money in the budget for people. But if we're going to argue about bringing stuff back and then on top of that, we're going to raise the minimum wage, which I do support doing, is that going to be a problem? Then it just makes the, it makes the gap even bigger to have to make up for it in pricing. Well, again, that goes back to the question of – and I'm sorry, I'm challenging capitalism here, but like – how much profit do you need to make? Yeah. And if if you are, you know, move fast, break things, private equity kind of mentality, um, it'll never be enough, right? You're always looking for the fat in the manufacturing, and the fat in the manufacturing will always come down to workers. Yeah. This is one of those, what I like to call, you're stuck between a shit and a fart with stuff <laughs> because – the buck has to stop somewhere, okay? And there's really two places it can stop, and I don't think either is a good answer. It stops with the government or it stops with the corporations. Right. And the corporations even buy the people in the government, so that's already a given no matter what the system is. And governments over time, you see when they take too much control, it never ends well. I would argue when corporations take too much control, it never ends well. So again, how do we get that happy medium where there's going to be some stuff you don't like? You're going to have corporations who have the ability to you know, fund some of the politicians they want. That's always going to be reality. But how do we get a situation where they can coexist and you can live in some sort of more utopian scenario where, say, as an example, the CEO pay average over the average worker isn't 300 Instead, it's 80 or something like that. How do you get there without A – Either either A, government taking too much control, or B, corporations taking too much control? Yeah. Well, good question. I actually think there's an end run around all of this, mm. and that's what I've been talking about, which is starting to think more about our communities and asking more of our communities, 
why don't we produce the things that we need? I mean, some things maybe you'll never be able to produce um, because of the limitations of your community. But there, I, I, I do think that we might want to start thinking more locally. And so one of the, the, the movements that I'm really, really into is um, urban manufacturing. Mm. So actually, and, and I've touched on this a little bit before, but like make things in New York. New York yeah, should we're be, talking about ice stone, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Make things in New York. And maybe if New York thinks that this is a good idea, um, New York State or the city um, figures out ways to support manufacturers mm. in a kind of more holistic way. Um, Germany, by the way, has really great support for workers. Um, I, I, we, could, we could definitely talk about that. But I, I think the idea is like this is our community. I'm a consumer. I'm a maker. I'm a teacher. All those things work together. So I kind of sound a little bit like a utopian, like, oh, American consumers should just give a shit. And then they should push their legislators and mayors or whatever to, like, care and support manufacturing any way we can. Um, but I've seen amazing things in my lifetime, and some of that stuff has come from people, right? Not from governments, not from corporations, but from people. People do amazing things when they want to. I've seen incredible things in my lifetime. I was just thinking about it when I was coming over here. I've seen America put a man on the moon. I've seen. Well, I've talk seen. Talk to this guy. He'll say allegedly. Oh, okay, allegedly. <laughs> A very elaborate hoax. Not, not true at all. <laughs> the camera, not true. We definitely put a man on the moon. Go ahead. All right. So I don't know. Saw, we can talk about that. You saw a man on the moon. I, I, I mean, in my lifetime, you know, America put a man on the moon, right? Um, we saw the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the mm -hmm. Soviet Union. That that came from people. Yes. Um, we saw the the a way to work with HIV and AIDS, which mm -hmm. at one point was a completely deadly disease. It was a, it was a death sentence if you got it. Um, we saw a vaccination for chicken pox. I got chicken pox when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm one of those people who actually I had did. it too. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did. What was wrong to the mother? You didn't go? Oh, no, maybe the no, they stole, came out. No, they stole it. It was definitely like right after or something. There was a long period still. I even remember in the 2000s, like if a kid got it, like they'd have the other kids Parties? stay over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Huh. Okay, so I, I did just... have the chicken pox. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I gotta double check. That. I'm like 99 sure I had. So it. my daughter was born in 2001, and she definitely got the vaccine. And mm. I was like, oh man, you're never gonna get chicken pox. Well, that was a rite of passage. Is now yeah. you know that. Yeah, <laughs> no, you don't get it. Um, but and I could go on and on. I mean, we have CRISPR. Like we're fucking oh, editing. Oh yeah, CRISPR's I, okay. nuts, man. All right, we have AI. We're like five years away from the singularity, right? I believe. If we don't already have it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Fair. Um, we have robots that can do anything. So um, I, th I think we can do this. I think Americans can start manufacturing locally all kinds of things. Um, I think, like I said, it, takes, it would take a shift in industrial policy to allow people like Ben and Whitney to just fucking do their jobs. Mm. So one of the things that holds them back, it's, it's not finding people to buy their sweatshirts. That's not hard. Um, but what does make life very difficult for them, for example, is health insurance. Mm. And this is 
pretty close to number one in American Manufacturers Association, which is a lobbying organization, a number one concern for them is that small manufacturers, small businesses in general, like trying to cover health care for employees is just a huge crap and headache. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah, that's another one. It's like, so I feel like, and I hope I'm wrong about this, I feel like in my lifetime it's always going to be a big argument, right? Like how do we how do we make the best system with that? Because you, you need people to have health care. But then when you are Ben and Whitney versus Walmart, your con- I mean, economy of scale is a thing, right? Well, I mean, Walmart doesn't even pay employees health care, so that's they why don't. so many Walmart workers were on um, were getting assistance from the government. I mean, that's how does enough. that work? Oh, so um, real quick, can I just go to the bathroom yeah, and you please explain do. this? Yeah, I want you to explain that. <laughs> All right, we're back. So we were you were about to talk about how Walmart is not paying a lot of their health care. Employees yeah, I mean, unfortunately, works. this has been reported for forever. But I mean, the the truth is that what they do is they hire shift workers who are actually working full time. But because and, and you know we, we see the same thing with like Uber and other companies. But um, so you, you hire them as shift workers, and so um, and I think the idea is like you keep their hours under uh, thirty four hours or something yep. like that. Yeah. And then you don't have to do a lot of things. You're you're no longer a steward of your employers. Right. You merely hand them a check, and the agreement is that they show up for work. And um, so, because of that, I don't know what percentage, but I I it's an astonishing number of um, Walmart workers are actually on government assistance because they're not making enough money and are not fully supported enough to be able to, well feed their families or um, pay for health care or, um, yeah, actually, did you, I'm, I'm sure you know this, but um, uh, medical, um, medical costs are the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. I have heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. It's not surprising. No. I mean, not. that stuff gets out of control. Right, because because yeah, because employers are supposed to provide health care and it's extremely insp- expensive, and so what they offer is this, you know, beautiful array of choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, uh, uh, there was this um, insurance executive who then retired and started telling the American people that when you hear the word choice. Um, your your brain should explode because choice merely means that um, we are offering you um, really inferior products mm. for very little money so that you can say that you are insured, but the fact is that we provide almost nothing. Yeah. Which is why the American Health – uh, ACA, um, they call it Obamacare, but, but that's why it was in part created to ensure that like if you do have – Health insurance, if somebody's selling you health insurance in America, at least it's going to cover some things. <laughs> right. And then there's always, but to your point, there's always holes in things. Like when I changed, I was on the corporate health care plan when oh, yeah. I worked on Wall Street, right? So then I went off on my own with no money and I had to change to my own health care plan. I was having some bad health problems at the time too. So, you know, it mattered what I did. And I think I had to go through. In the first six months, because then I'd have like doctor's appointments and procedures and stuff, and I'd learn after the fact, oh shit, that's not covered. I had to go through like three different plans just to get to one that's like mediocre, and I pay a lot for it. 
I mean, oh, it's a, it's a yeah. lot of money pay every month. so much. And I've just forgotten about it, you know, because I've been used to it now for a few years. But, you know, I look at that and I'm like, I'm lucky I'm a single guy. I don't have a family to support and things like that. I can't even imagine if I had to, you know, work a job with limited upside and I had, you know, two kids and a wife and we had to find a way to get this coverage correct. God forbid I had to cover it myself. Or God forbid, you know, you look at like Ben and Whitney, they started their own business, right? So they're... And I think they have kids too, right? They have three so kids. they're covering. Mm-hmm. I would imagine as they're building that business, trying to get off zero every day, they're they're having to cover the healthcare of all that. That's a common American story. It makes it difficult. And know? here's here's a dispo- dystopian reality: when you call to buy health insurance, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure you did this. Mm-hmm. They're like. So do you plan on having cancer in the next six months? I mean, like, <laughs> right? Because you're supposed to be choosing yeah. what's best for right. you. And you're like, no, I'm definitely not getting cancer yeah. in the next six months. Feel good Oh, good, it. good. Okay, so are, are you going to get hit by the cross-down bus in the next six months? Because that also, you'll have to factor that in. And it's like, no, actually, I have no plans. And then they're like, um, are you going to get into a a, a boating accident and right. break your leg and you're like oh that might happen oh then this is the insurance you need yeah what the hell kind of life it are we no living sense. choice that's not yeah. choice like nobody's yeah. offering you a choice it's it's a it basically they're forcing you to gamble which is not one of the seven deadly sins no maybe not but i mean i hate gambling you're not a gambler oh hell no 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 i'm i'm a i'm a i like to say i'm a creative gambler so i take chances like writing a book writing a book right um, There's gambling and everything. You're right about that. I mean, yeah. that was that. Uh, you know, what I choose to write about and how I choose to write about it is a huge freaking gamble. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to make sure people get it. But, That's why we're doing this podcast. But you will not see me playing the slots in uh, Atlantic City. No. Mm. I wouldn't have taken you for that. Okay. I would. I wouldn't guess you would have. But you, we were actually just talking off camera right before we went back on at the break about. The problem with convenience, and Alessi was chiming in on this about, you know, made in the USA, what he looks at and what he doesn't. And it's usually just like, oh, if I, he was saying, if I need to go buy this thing right now, if I need to buy gym shorts or something and the store's right there, I go get it. Right. And, you know, there are only 24 hours in the day. You got (laughs) to sleep six to eight of them, whatever it is. And, you know, people got to go about their life. I use this example for a lot of things. I understand this. So what what are the best ways to do this conveniently to be able to if I got to buy some right away I can know that I'm going somewhere where it's made in America for a given product. We were talking about plugging in made in America to Amazon and how that's not reliable. So like what 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 can we do? Yeah, exactly right. So, you know, starting in 1992 when NAFTA was passed, suddenly we were flooded with foreign made goods and now it's just like everywhere and you can't avoid it it's very very difficult so good so the question is where do i go well unfortunately i do spend a lot of time researching i am a Mm. journalist and so when i want to buy stuff um like to be honest i I need underwear i know hanky panky is made in america um commando a lot of it is made in america these are this is women's underwear so like i just have a go go to companies that I know are made in America. But mm. there is a lot of bait and switch. Um, what do you mean bait and switch? So like a lot of companies start out saying we're made in USA and um, that's part of their brand. And then 
they offshore just a little bit here and a little bit mm. there, and maybe they're bought by a private equity firm. And before you know it, like you're loyal to this brand, and they're not making anything anywhere near your local. Right. You know, um, I think Carhartt was actually a really good example of that. We were talking about Carhartt, where the the idea is like, oh, it's made in, it's an American brand. It's made in USA. Well, it's definitely an American brand. Um, most of it is not made in the USA anymore. So so your question is a good one. I wish I had a good answer for you. I really do. There, there are these aggregators on the web um, that are like, we'll, we'll show you all the made in USA stuff. Um, they're really hard to search because they're not set up as Google or Amazon, right? These are probably, it's probably a guy or a woman in a room saying, I'm frustrated, right. you know. Right. And they're not always updating their stuff. I've actually like gone to these sites and actually followed the links and gone through and found out that just what I was telling you, that companies were making the stuff in the USA and then it turned out that they weren't anymore. So that had changed. So the, the links or the information wasn't up to date. It's really, really hard. It shouldn't be. I don't know why it's so hard. Maybe this is an opportunity for one of your listeners to actually yeah. make something that actually works. It, it shouldn't. I mean, there should be an app for that, right? Like <laughs> you just... I need underwear. Tell me, tell me what, because you're not going to spend more for these things. You don't have to. You just have to know where this shit is and how to buy it. Now, I feel like you could make, there could be a way to make a central repository that kind of uh, amalgamates things and put it, puts it together like a search engine that could do that. That would be cool. But you're also working behind the eight ball with, I mean, we've covered this a little bit, but to put the example back, like with the economies of scale, because think about Two of the con- companies we've been talking about, Walmart and Amazon. Walmart is a physical place. I mean they're online too. Let's be clear about that. But we think of them traditionally as like the place you walk in. They got a section for everything, right? And there's a big one right there in your town in a lot of places in America. And then Amazon brings that shit right to your door, mm. right? And we all know the stories about them making like their driver's shit in a box to be able to get to the next spot. <laughs> and it's that competitive just to be able to work there, which is wrong on every level to be clear. But you're competing – with the ultimate convenience when you are Ben and Whitney, when you are any of these smaller businesses, which now, I mean, we've seen the numbers since NAFTA, but even before that, as technology has grown, we have watched mom and pop businesses go down like this. And I wonder if that's a trend that we're going to be able to stop. And that's what you're arguing. Maybe we can because we can manufacture here and and do things. And I I hope you're right about that. I do wonder about how much people will be willing to trade off even the top edge of their convenience to be able to help with this, though. It's a a natural question. You make a really good point. I mean, look, you know, Amazon is obviously watching us. They're listening to us right now now through our phones or whatever it is i mean and and they're very very sensitive to trends and um so you know if americans start constantly asking is this made in usa Mm. can you give me a little you know it's easy for them to to put a little checkbox on there in their search engine you you know when you search for something and you can do the filter and you know i mean i'm not sure if they have that yet but i mean it it should be one of the little things that you check <laughs> made in America. Made in America. Can it's, we check that? Pretty simple. See if they have that. And then, and if they do have it, I can tell you that I have checked that box, and then I get very disappointed because it's not actually it. It ends up being like American companies right. that um, obviously are not manufacturing. Go, go here. to go to Amazon. 
Go to Amazon.com. Oh, he doesn't know how to go to Amazon. We'll have to spell it out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Amazon Rainforest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Now go to see if we can do a f- search For T-shirt. Un- oh, yeah, search, okay. Search okay. T-shirt. Yeah. All right. We'll do this live. And we have this on the third camera so people could see this right now. Now go to sort by at the top right. Top right. Yep. Is there any no, way? No, no. I'm talking about on the left. Like all the options oh, on the yeah, left. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Over here. Climate pledge friendly. Oh, okay. See, so that's a new thing. They didn't have to put that on there, but obviously consumers give a shit. Go down. American Apparel. Well, that's just no, a brand. It's, yeah, it's a brand. Yeah. Go down. Go down. Classic fit. Birthday. Great. Occasion. <laughs> Size. Description. Nope, that's a shipping choice. So they don't even have it. Right. Yeah, they do well to do that. I mean, I don't see how they lose on it too, because Amazon's just a giant repository of stuff. Yeah, like how could they lose? How could they lose? They don't care as long as they're doing the delivering. But the point is that they're not going to add a checkbox on that list on the side unless people ask for it. People ask for it, and or it benefits them. Okay, now that's a good solution because that can that can work with the existing hierarchical system. and build in something positive to it. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, that's, a, that's that would be a really simple fix, wouldn't it? Like, just check that box, and then you get anchor. Like, for example, if you're looking for, um, I'm just I'm just touting all the really cool companies that I know about. But like, if you want glass containers for for food storage, I don't know if you do food storage, but Anchor Hawking is an American company. They make stuff right here. There's no reason that you need to buy stuff made in China. It costs just about the same, and and um, yeah, it supports. Your fellow Americans. And the money stays in here. Oh, let me just talk about one more thing. It's called the multiplier effect. Have, multiplier. have you heard about this yet? I have definitely heard that term, but please explain. I mean, I'm sure it, it can apply to like many different industries and different whatever constructs. But um, in, in, um, in economics, the multiplier um, effect that I'm talking about is a dollar that is spent in a community, like for a local business, um, stays in the community. It actually does a little round of the community three or four times before it actually leaves the community. This, these are their studies that have shown this. And right. while it's bouncing around the community, in, um, it's, it's actually growing because it's supporting the local community. So the people are benefited, benefiting from it, and it grows, and then it eventually exits. So it's, it's a really powerful reminder of what happens when you support your community by buying Keeping stuff. Keeping the resource within. Yeah. 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 That's a great example right I there. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I mean, the, the emphasis... I w- you talked about, like, Amazon being on top of trends and stuff. I do wonder about... Some of those, some of the more eclectic things we're seeing as Gen Z is starting mm-hmm. to come up where they are a little less concerned with every single frame and what it looks like as opposed to millennials, right? So could that mean that like when I look at millennials, which I'm on the very back end of millennials, but when I look at that, we're prone to more big international brand type things. Yeah. I can't believe it. It's so weird that like right? people get excited about Nike. It's like, what is Nike? What does that mean? I know. I like Nike though. You know what I mean? What but do you I, like I don't, about it? I'm curious. But, but here's the thing. Okay, sorry. Well, I do like the swoosh. It's a, it's a good look. But like <laughs> I'm not the guy who's going to make or break on that stuff. I don't give a shit. Like if it's Nike and I like it, I'm buying it. If it's not Nike, I'm not going to not buy it. Okay. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of millennials 
aren't like that though. They're like, what does everyone else have? What's on Instagram? What are what are people wearing? I want that too. There's a way to shift this back though to local community if you are able if social media begins to focus more, and I've seen this a little bit on what the what the people around you are doing. I'll give you an example. We had a video couple years ago it was a clip I made and it was probably one of the prouder moments in my podcast because I was it was unplanned what ended up happening but it was a video my my friend Jim DiOrio was on the podcast the first time he was on here back in the day (laughs) and he told a story he's a West Pointer so he told a story about this kid CJ at West Point who tragically as a senior died during a during a drill there and he had he had seen CJ because he was a star wrestler towards what was the end of his career, I guess, at that point. And he, CJ's parents are from North Jersey, around where, where Jim is. So he ended up meeting them and whatever. And he told this very emotional story about when he met CJ's dad, who had been a Secret Service agent, the whole bit. And, you know, he's like, man, how could this guy deal with losing his son like that? Like, I can't even imagine this. And, you know, I'll let the clip do the talking, but Jim was emotionally gripped by it. And so... When I put out this clip, I didn't tell Jim I was going to go make this clip from that episode or whatever. I just decided one night to make it, and I was sitting there, and I felt on this one I was really taking my time because I'm like there's a level of respect I have for what happened here and who's involved. I want to make sure we do this right. So we put it out, and you know it did millions of views, which is great. But when I put the clip on TikTok, I had captions on it, and I used – the TikTok captions, which at the time, this doesn't matter as much now, but that's even better because TikTok is reading the data you're typing in. So I would type in, oh, you right. know, like when he said each word, obviously, for a caption. And so at some point, he said, from East Orange, New Jersey. <sighs> and so what do you think happened? Everyone who was around who was from East Orange – or uh, it was West Orange, New Jersey. Everyone who's from West Orange and the surrounding areas in New Jersey logging into TikTok, and TikTok knows their data on that was getting the video. So on TikTok, if that thing did like 5 million views or whatever it was, I'm telling you 80% of them came from people who live within literally like an hour radius of that area or who are originally from there. And so it created this communal effect, and I didn't know this, but at the time, he, he he had died, I think, two years before that. And so the first year, which is the year before this clip, there was a... His parents put together like a memorial golf tournament to raise money for the cause whatever the cause is in his memory it's like a scholarship fund and everything and so the second one was about a month away when i put this clip out and what i didn't know is that his mom was despondent because they couldn't get people to return calls about this golf tournament it wasn't getting filled out and she's like oh my god people already forgot about my son Mm -hmm. this clip happens the community sees it right Golf tournament was sold out the next day. Wow. And I see, I get chills talking about that because it was, you know, I'm posting a TikTok. I was sitting in my grandparents' house in Ocean City, New Jersey, not near West Orange, right? Post this thing, just making the clip right. And the way we were able to use technology formed the community online. So I say all that to say, I wonder if there are ways we can do this with fashion statements or with statements about the brands we work with, which represent where we're from. Like I love, for for instance, that I'm from New Jersey. All the listeners know that because I don't shut the fuck up about it, right? <laughs> what if you know if if I could feel if I were one of those people, and I'm not a great example, but if I were one of the many people who looks at well, what are what is everyone else wearing and doing? What if I? What if we could all congregate around? Oh, this is New Jersey yeah. clothing, or something like that. That'd be very cool. 
Well, what you're talking about is is the shift to, to localizing. And yes. it's, it's you know, I mean, so I'm Gen I'm Gen X, um, and I th- I think there was this interest in authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a react reaction to globalization, and you know, people were really looking for authentic experiences and authentic brands, whatever that whatever authenticity means. And um, now, what you're talking about, and I never really thought about this before, was the idea that technology could help you accomplish that level of authenticity or mm. localness that maybe a lot of us we feel we're missing. We, yes. you know, we 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 want community. Um, you know, we want to feel part of something. I mean, when you're talking about brands. Um, you're and you and when you're talking about like the millennials wanting to wear the whatever the thing is that's the next thing. I mean, is that not about showing that you belong? Yes. All those things are signifiers, and so the idea you're right that tech could like amplify that, and not only by the way is is the branding of this thing somehow tied locally but it's also manufactured locally like that's just another level of authenticity you know um community pride support yeah that could be amped up by tech i love it i love it let's make it happen i i feel like we figured it out like we got a roadmap yeah, th- right th- there's been some good ideas <laughs> floating around in here today i like it i think you're right that people really care i think you're right that that there is desire to um find common ground and support each other I think that I think um, that we have found that um, you know if you take that away from somebody, you don't have a lot left. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's and that's kind of the danger of the modern world because we're so stuck right here, right? We're so stuck on worrying about how everything looks here that we're not we're never present, right? And and part of being in a community is you are present. You know you. The way this country was built was communities of people yeah. who just knew each other. They didn't have technology. They they farmed their own farms. They produced their own clothes. They took care of each other, and they sent snail mail to the faraway <laughs> town next door to find out what's going on over there and keep up with the affairs. There's I, something very eclectic but beautiful about that. I mean, it, it's you know, it was never utopian. But getting back to the question of our men, our guys, our Americans, and how we're going to make sure that our guys are okay. Yeah. Like, I think there's a part of that here, right? Like, understanding that we are connected, but then connecting materially through the things that we wear, um, you know, the things that we eat, the, the identifying each other, you know, through domestic manufacturing, giving men an opportunity to get into these different kinds of industries that are so can be like so rewarding. Um, I just feel like there's something there. I feel like what we have seen in kind of the demise of community and the pain that a lot of men are feeling has so much to do with the loss of manufacturing, which really anchored um, us to place. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's why when you see it's it's extra depressing, like you talked about at the beginning of your book and you've talked about on this podcast with other examples, but like when you were taking the train between Philly and New York and you saw all those abandoned buildings, which 
You know, if you go look at the footage of like Rocky in 1976, they weren't abandoned then. That's not that long ago. Yeah. And now they're they're these like, it's almost you think of it like the aesthetic. Like, yo, it'd be sick to take an Instagram in front of that in front of that <laughs> old building right there. That'd be so cool. But it's empty. There's there's nothing in there, and it and it's it's wasted space it actually. It you is. know, and you could you could fill it with something. But is there legislatively, you know, we we've, yeah. we've talked about NAFTA and WTO. Are there any current, you right. know, legislative ideas that are being kicked around to repeal things like that or make something new that's better? Yeah. So, um, so, so when Trump was speaking about this, he addressed it through tariffs. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have tariffs. We've always had tariffs, as you pointed out. Um, so there is like a whole office uh, um, in at the federal level that's dedicated to issuing tariffs to slow down the influx of foreign-made goods. Um, you can be pro or anti-tariff. It's it's really complicated because if you in, issue a tariff for one thing, somebody else gets screwed. You know, it's it's a really tough thing to do. Yes. So um, that's why I think a lot of people, including um, the former Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, I have, I have a quote from him in the book because I interviewed him, um, he actually was like, oh, it has to come from consumers. Like, consumers need to care. But I I actually think there are a number of things that we could do. One is to make this path easier. We were talking about vocational training. Mm-hmm. I think vocational training, um, it's not going to – the movement isn't going to start with vocational training, but vocational training is a big piece of this. Um, there's a serious um, skills gap in in America um, that a lot of companies would like to actually manufacture here, but they can't because we don't have workers who know how to do these kinds of things. And as I said, manufacturing is getting more and more um, technologically sophisticated. So what we need to be producing are people who can actually like program rob- robots, work with robots, electrical electrical engineering, you know, whatever it takes to to get that sophisticated equipment going, be able to customize, yeah. keep it working. Um, so there's the vocational training component to it, which I think it should be clear that, like, at some point you make a decision when you're going to school, you're going to – you're in eighth grade or whatever, and you're like, I want to I get into manufacturing, and then that's the branch that you go into, and that's the track that you follow. Mm-hmm. A lot of foreign workers who come in have actually had that kind of training because that is a reality in their countries, whereas we do not have that reality here. The assumption is, I don't know, you're all, we're all going to be little geniuses and go to Amherst College. I don't know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I think that's one thing, like creating a path, a viable path to manufacturing starting from when you're young and saying, this is okay. Like there's a whole community ready, waiting for you. I'm talking about unions, but I'm also talking about manufacturers, companies, corporations that are like, mm-hmm. we want to make things here. We're waiting mm-hmm. for you with open arms. There's a track here, a viable track. This can happen. We talked about healthcare, which is a real, real serious issue. Um, you know, universal healthcare is just an obvious solution to a lot of the problems that small American businesses face. If they didn't have to deal with that piece of the puzzle, which is unnecessarily complex buying health care insurance mm-hmm. for, for workers. Like, that, just take that off their plate so they don't have to worry about it. Just take it off their plate. Um, I think uh, another thing is um, I think right now it's difficult also because we don't have a clear domestic supply chain in a lot of industries, and that's a matter of rebuilding. What do you mean by that? I mean just like the Waxman's. 
They wanted to source zippers in America. There's, as far as I know, one company that makes zippers in America. It's called mm. UCAN, U-C-A-N. UCAN Zipper Manufacturing in L.A., California. They make beautiful zippers. Um, if there were five zipper companies, now and now we have an industry. But, right. you know, um, so whatever people make, like – there's going to be kind of a waiting period or a growth period where we are redeveloping these skills yes. domestically, redeveloping industries so that we can actually source in America. And and I mentioned the whole circular economy thing. I mean, I think that gives us an opportunity, right, um, to be able to start thinking about our waste and how that could feed back into these supply mm. supply, supply chain questions. Um and then, like I said, you know, I think you have – I think, I think to be super resilient, you need to put manufacturing where the people are. I think it was kind of a mistake in general to um, want to build factories in like really rural places because then people are at the mercy of that company. Ah, uh, right. But, you know – there's so many. There's so such high concentrations of people's people in cities that to me it makes sense that you know you put in the manufacturing there. But we've also fucked that up though too. I mean, look at Detroit, right? They and and I'm not disagreeing with you. When you go out rural, we talked about those examples earlier. It makes it impossible because then they pick up and leave, and it's like, well, there's nothing left here. Right, because right? that was a one industry town. They make cars. True. Right. So you're saying if it were diverse, diverse, if, oh. yeah. And think smaller. I mean, it's the same with energy that <laughs> I, I, as when I was an architect, this was a big thing that I was talking about. Like, think smaller. Think more locally when it comes to energy. Why are you getting energy shipped from Canada down to New York? Like, <laughs> if you could generate your own energy locally, um, you know, then you start to be more independent in all kinds of ways. Yeah, and then we get into some of the environmental arguments, yeah. though, with that, which, you know, some of that's a concern, right? And some of it may be overblown. Some of it may be like, okay, well, we should do things for a set amount of time until we come up with a better way. But it does get a little it, – it does feel like you, you're, you're never going to make everyone happy. No. We, we know that. No. But, you know, thinking about history – has there ever been an example of like an empire, you know, a power civilization that continued to exist in power after they had outsourced everything? Oh, great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I'll tell you a devastating example. Let's the, hear it. The, 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 the inverse. Let's hear it. Yeah. So the fourth largest manufacturing power. In the world, in the 1500s, was India. Mm. India see where this is going. was producing amazing stuff. They were in a great position because they were there, you know, between China. They got stuff from China, you know, like silks and stuff like that. And they got um, great stuff from, um, you know, to, to the West, um, Iraq, Iran, all that. Um, so they were kind of geographically really well positioned and plus they were big the big peninsula but um then the british come in and the thing that the british destroyed ultimately was all manufacturing in india 
Mm. Because once the British sucked everything out of India, then they wanted India to they wanted to turn Indians, people in India, into consumers of British and imported goods. Sound familiar? Yes. Yeah. And so they destroyed India's ability to manufacture and flooded India with cheap imports. And so that's how, in just a couple hundred years, you take the fourth largest manufacturing economy in the world and you you break its kneecaps. That answers my question. <laughs> well, so that's the inverse. So your question is like, um, is there any country that... That ever lasted, but it answers my question about it's a big problem. <laughs> well, I think when you lose manufacturing, you lose your independence. Yes, exactly. You can no longer negotiate for things that benefit you because you're always trying to weigh how those decisions will affect things you desperately depend on. Yes. And I guess, you know, I am not I'm not an American chauvinist. I'm not like rah rah, you know, wave the flag. But I think that there's something really special about being American yes. that you feel when you go abroad. You know, you miss America. I'm freedom of speech is a real thing that you don't get elsewhere. Right. Um, there's there's so many things that are culturally American that I just highly value, and you don't realize how it's different in other places until you go there. Until you go. Like I really do love so many things about my country. Um, where my family has been for 130 years. Um, we might have to pack up and leave at some point, but that's just the reality. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I just also think that America could be a model yes. for um, countries finding new ways to be independent of each other in some very important ways and supporting um, their citizens and their quest to, you know, protect themselves from the effects of climate change and that sort of thing. Like I just, I just feel like by controlling your manufacturing, it just you, you bring back the power to 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 your to your citizens. Like yes. you're giving them the ability to control their own destiny. Yeah, I feel like we also have such we have the greatest access in world history to study history mm-hmm. now than we even thirty years ago. I mean, you, you have the internet at the tip of your finger so you can see you can go and look at every you want to answer a question you heard some of the specific questions we were asking just today on the podcast for Leslie to look up here it's like you can go answer some of your own questions on this stuff and figure out okay if this didn't work for them in what parallel universe can we make sure that we don't do that right because the world's different it changes but some things stay the same as far as like trends and I think about that a lot because I'm like, damn, you know, if we're not especially getting caught with our pants down when when COVID started, I mean, you mentioned it was 90% of pharmaceuticals yeah. are, are produced elsewhere. Yeah. You know, companies like Ben and Whitney's had to go and and make the PPE, which isn't even pharmaceuticals, by the way, but like they had to go make the emergency Crazy, equipment. Right? right. Because we couldn't get it. And, you know, what, what was the, the other thing was, what was the... I'm already forgetting this. This is terrible. But in 2021, when COVID was loosening up a little bit, there was like a huge cargo crisis right out here and in and mm-hmm. in California yeah. as well, where you just saw hundreds of boats lined up for my. What was that? 
right there. That was another problem with yeah, our supply was, chain. Yeah, that was a new phenomenon. That was because people were working from home and suddenly they realized they need all kinds of needed all kinds of equipment to work from home. <laughs> So <laughs> they were nesting, like hardcore, uh. you know, power nesting. And so, yeah, a lot of stuff was coming from China. I, I wanted to tell you one more story, and I'll leave you sure. with this because it's really interesting. And it addresses something that I think – I've been anticipating that people are going to talk about this, so I just like to put it out there. Um, what happens when corporations um, introduce imported pro- products to developing countries? <laughs> um, it changes the – it gives them utility for things they didn't previously have. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about that for a second. So I was at this kind of um, surreal event maybe 10 years ago and um, it was about um, – believe it or not, domestic manufacturing. And the manufacturer in this case was Gillette. And they had put together this video that was supposed to make everybody feel really, really good. Mm. Okay. Here was the video. They'd gone to some city in India. I can't remember which one. Please excuse me. Say New Delhi. I don't know. And um, they observed how men were shaving. And in New Delhi, wherever it was, I'm sorry, please excuse me. It was a large city in India, the men went to their local shaver to, sh- to get shaved. Mm. So there were all of these tiny, tiny businesses, you know, just a one-man operation where they'd have a strop, you know, and, and the, the straight razor. Yeah, yeah. And um, they would use that straight razor forever, and they used the strop forever, and guys, when they needed a shave, would come in and get a shave. Like the old-school Italian barbershop. A hundred percent. That's yeah. exactly what we're talking about. So Gillette, remember, Gillette is using this film as a promo. So they show like, oh, th- this is this is how this is what men have to do to get a shave around here, right? Yeah. You go down to you you exit your apartment or whatever, and you go down the street to, and there's a like a barber everywhere because dudes need to get get a shave, and so they were providing a service. So Gillette was like, let's introduce the disposable razor. You know where this is going. Mm. Let's give these guys. What's the word? What's the special word? Freedom. Utility. Yeah, yeah, freedom. Freedom. Um, now they can shave in, in the privacy of their own home. So the other thing that they did was what what, what attracts people in India? What, what kind of packaging should we put this new plastic fucking razor in? And it turns out that they liked Mylar packaging. Mm. My God. Okay. So they flood the place with... Individually, mylar bag wrapped, shiny plastic disposable razors. You can imagine what happens. So, first of all, immediately you put all these guys out of business, right? All, all these guys who've been shaving men forever, mm-hmm. they're out of business, they're gone. There's no need for them anymore. Um, now you also have an ecological disaster yeah, because you have the wrapper and da da. You also have an economic disaster because now these men are buying these razors and the money is going out of the country. So whereas before, remember I mentioned the multiplier effect where, um, you know, you're, you're paying Mr. Dude to shave your face and then Mr. Dude would go and like buy a tea at a, I don't know. You can see how that yes, money would. Okay. Now it's gone out. Um, so now you have piles and piles of trash, disposable razors. You've put a whole community out of work. And um, now men have to spend a chunk of their salaries to buy these plastic devices, which now can go up in price 
Because as soon as you own a monopoly over the thing and you've put the alternative out of business, you have to buy the disposable razor. Right. It's a, and it creates a brand new cycle that's not good. No bueno, yeah. Yeah, the whole way across. Well, listen, this, this you have done some mind-blowing research on history. And again, everyone can get your book down in the description below, Making It in America. It's a really cool story. I'm going to finish it after this conversation. But it's 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 a really cool story what you're doing and and as you said at the outset of this because you know where my head goes with this stuff but you're like you want to inspire hope with this because my head is going right to the fall of american manufacturing but this is actually you know you are giving this this success story of two people who were able to do it with their business so let's see if we can make that a thing and let's see if some of those other ideas we had in here could be like implemented by somebody smart out there i don't know how to do it but Let's come together and figure it out. I would be entirely grateful for that. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming, Rachel. Hey, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Everybody else, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace. Thank you for watching this episode, guys. If you haven't already, please smash that subscribe button and hit that like button on the video. It is a huge, huge help to getting our videos into the algorithm on YouTube. So thank you to everyone who does that. And also, if you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can get me at Julian Dory Podcast for daily exclusive clips that we put out from the show or on my personal page at Julian D. Dory. The links are in the description below. See you guys for the next one.